and we're live. Guys, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing fine. I hadn't heard the uh, that intro thing since you posted originally. That that <laughs> thing, oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm amped now. Me too. <laughs> how are you doing, Caleb? I am doing great. Today, I realized when I went to Turrets, I realized it was exactly one year since I started going to Catholic Churches. Mm-hmm. And so it was oh, been, that's uh, great. I was confirmed in April, but it's this one year really since I started going to mass, started going to RCII classes, and it's been a, it's been a great year. Mm-hmm. That's great to hear. Yeah. I'll say, um, I had a friend. He joined up. So I go to RCII classes like the, a month after I did. But I, with my church, I'm the only person in the RCII class. He's in there with like seven other people, and so. When the priest talked to me, he's like, "You know enough. We're gonna speed you along so you get confirmed in April." He had to wait an extra <laughs> year. So even though he was researching Catholicism before I was and got me to go deeper into it, I beat him. <laughs> <laughs> and he's little. He said, "Like I was like, it was great. The Eucharist is amazing." And he'd be like, "Don't, don't, don't brag." <laughs> <laughs> so you did RCA. Like you're the only um, catechist. Wow, that's yep. a that's. I, I, that's a rarity, but that's got to be a nice experience. You get all the attention focused on you and can actually, because I've, I, so I went through this process recently when my wife converted um, before we got married mm-hmm. and it was a, a bigger class. I can't remember exactly how many it was, but it always sort of drove me crazy seeing it from that sort of knowing what, what they were going to learn mm-hmm. um, that it ended up being so much like sort of a normal sort of school kind of regimen of class that there wasn't a lot of chance to like, you know, ask questions, get a good back and forth. But having that personalized uh-huh. experience, that sounds really nice. Oh, that yeah. would, I, I, that's uh, that if only everyone could have that kind of just, yeah, you get every, like, it's, it's so directed towards what, towards what your particular needs are and not the sort of very formulaic. Yeah. No, you know, here's was, what's in the book thing. It was fantastic. It was great. Is it gave, gave the church is a, has a great library. And since I'm the only one who ever like actually reads at the church, because everyone <laughs> in my church is old. I'm the youngest person there. The youngest, next youngest person is uh 60. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm the only one who actually reads. And so they're just like, you want access to the library, borrow any book you want. And so I was just grabbing books up the shelves on like natural family planning, books by Bivin Popes. Um, and then people be like, oh, we got a new guy here. Give him these books. And they would just start, like, I would show up and they would give me, I believe, like six new books. Like most of these books on the bookstore in the Catholic section are all gifts from the people in the church, which has been just a lifesaver. Because I don't know, yeah, what I, I don't amazing. know what I don't know. And they do know what I don't know. And so there's family <laughs> books. And they're like, here's, here's the answer to your questions they're going to ask next week. I'm like, yes. It's been it's been a lifesaver. <laughs> so before we get into the topic of beauty, I wanted to bring up a little side point. The, um, the Orthodox have this principle where when you join the to become a catechumen, they do not want you discussing theology or any church matters um, has an Eastern Orthodox person representing them if you are not fully through the process. That mm-hmm. way you don't get dissuaded before you actually know what you're talking about and you don't make them mm-hmm. look bad by uh, association. When I talk to my Protestant friends about this, they think it's the worst thing ever. Makes you look like a cult. I, I actually think it's a good thing. No, uh, I, I, I what... kind of agree. Even if purely strategically, I agree. One of, I think, the most uh, famous Nietzsche quotes, and I know that he's not exactly the most liked person here, <laughs> but one of his best quotes is that more damage has been done to good causes by being ineptly defended than ably attacked. <laughs> and this is incredibly true. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, look at, I mean, look at, let's take an example uh, near and dear to our hearts, a libertarianism. 
I think everyone <laughs> can say that, <laughs> in fact, of a main fault of libertarianism being what it is today is with libertarians who defend libertarianism and not with, um, let's say, our great enemies and intellectual adversaries pinpointing our weak spots and, ne and needling us. Yeah. It's like we have people like Tom Woods and we end up getting Zoe Jorgensen representing us. <laughs> yeah, essentially <laughs> that, basically. Well, I'm, I actually met Zoe Jorgensen. I got a photo with her. Um, it's I don't I don't like I don't like that I had that photo honestly. It's like when you get a photo of someone who's been canceled, you're like I gotta hide it. <laughs> I'm sure she's a fine person. I hope I well, don't I guess I don't know anything about her. I'm sure she's nice. She's enough, very friendly. Very, yeah, too friendly for politics. Yeah, basically. Um, even yeah, unless you're even Ron, Mister. Uh, yeah, Mr. Ron Paul, I guess, is what I would say. But Saint, uh, Saint Ron Juan Paul is... Yeah, Saint, Saint Paul. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, was very, very friendly, but at least... But, you know, he had the requisite backbone mm -hmm. for it. Uh, and the requisite... Uh, I guess, though, this might... Though this is not exactly the right phrase, the requisite level of red pilling to mm -hmm. know what to say, when to say, and the backbone to say it. <laughs> Even if he wasn't the most articulate speaker ever, I was like his moment when um he had some uh, um fat guy yelling at him about like um, <laughs> you we need to ban drugs the people won't be doing drugs in the street and he's angry one part is angry because he's been yelling at him for like an hour now he's like the government can't make you a good person you're a little overweight why don't they put you on a diet <laughs> <laughs> like when he when he wanted to be mean he could cut you down and it's just yeah. you. So that's what you need to be able to do be friendly and nice and then be able to turn the switch and just take him down mm -hmm. mm. but yes i agree with the orthodoxes oh, orthodoxes <laughs> with the orthodox uh christians <laughs> I don't know. English is not my first language. So <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. I think wrong. we call it Eastern Orthodox, what I'm going to call it. Yeah, the East, I agree with the Eastern Orthodox when they say, you know, you probably shouldn't be spouting off uh, when you're not through the whole process. I think that video I translated of Father Paulo Ricardo, who uh, made the point that, you know, St. Paul, after his baptism, after his mystic encounter with God, his direct touch with the grace of God, stayed quiet for 13 years. You had a half conversion yesterday, and now you're sitting there in your chair judging everyone else. For the love of God, go study and pray. <laughs> yes. Is, yes. A great, great speech. I love that so much. It was a part of a lecture, a one-hour lecture that he had on St. Paul. And Cass, what about you? What's your take on the whole thing? Yeah, I'd say even beyond just like before you know what you're talking about, trying to trying to go out and, and preach, or I think even – because the most valuable thing I think you can do is, is keep is talk to people that know what what you don't know, mm -hmm. um, and have the the humility and the and the honesty of yourself to realize, okay, I don't know a whole lot. Not only do, not only should I not be trying to share these the, all these wonderful things that I don't really understand yet, I shouldn't be trying to. I should let other people that do know tell me more. Like if you're having a conversation, just be quiet and let the other person tell you things. Because mm -hmm. so often you'll, and I think the the analogy of libertarianism is is very apt. You'll have people that you know they they discovered. I don't even know what what sort of the the most milk toast um, treatise on on libertarianism that you yeah, could. We know in Friedman. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And then we'll we'll one try essay, to explain. One short essay by Milton Friedman. There we go. Yep. One video on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, even better, even better. But not, not only will they try and tell other people about the wonders of libertarianism, they'll try and tell libertarians about all these great things they've discovered. Like, yes, we've read. Here, here's seven more books for you. Just mm -hmm. please listen. Like, you're, you're on a great start, but give yourself time to actually understand this. 
Now, you'll, you'll get there, but we know what you're trying to say. We know the mistakes you're making. Please, like, don't. We've thought about these things. Get to give give yourself time to breathe. This is not something. And like anything with any depth, any significance, if you could learn anything of value, or that's not entirely true. Well, if you could learn anything of value in, in half an hour, everyone would know it. It's these things that take time, and there's a lot of complexity too. And you really have to you have to force yourself to to be humble and keep learning. I don't think anybody, you know, the 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 grades of any of these fields. No one thinks they know everything. They're still saying, okay, I'm I'm you know intellectual midget compared to what there is to know. Mm-hmm. And the the less you talk and the more you listen, it's it's it never stops being valuable to to shut up and 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 think and listen and and try and know more before you speak. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have I, I was looking through my old tweets because I was trying to find I was searching through my Twitter trying to find an old tweet because I remember I heard I had a sermon. Or homily, and I was trying to find the homily that I say as so I was like typing in things on my Twitter search. So I'm like, what did I say about that homily? Trying to find it, and I found some of my old tweets when I first became a libertarian. I argued with conservatives, and I'm like, oh god, if I had just waited six months, I would have embarrassed myself so bad. <laughs> like they were so. I was like, I was arguing this common good, and I made I made a slip of the tongue say, and I should have said. The common good is not subjective; it is objectively common good because good is objective. But people's enforcement of it is going to be subjective because we can't trust politicians. I just said the good is subjective, like an idiot. And it's just like I ah, I, I reading my tweets. I'm like I want to debate myself now. I want to I want to quote tweet this loser and make fun of him and tag him. <laughs> <laughs> well, and to, and to kind of go against a little bit of what I was saying. The there's nothing wrong with embarrassing yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I think it's a good learning experience for yourself. The, the, again, I think humility is the big key here because there's nothing wrong with discussing the ideas. You know, you try and come at it from a place of okay, what can I learn, not what can I teach other people, and we can all do that better because again, we've we think we, when we we have discovered something incredible and something great that we want to try and share, but everyone else can teach us things too. So if you're willing to if you're willing to lose a debate, that's uh, the sort of modern debate. Um, the matter approach debate, I, I can't stand because everyone's going in trying to win a debate. And the goal should be the goal should, of, of any kind of discussion or any kind of debate should be truth is truth should win the debate. Mm-hmm. The participants should just try and get to the truth. And um, yeah, so I think embarrassing yourselves in a conversation, if, if you you know had a Twitter argument and lost terribly, you learn something from that. That's a, that's a win for you. That's, you know, whether, whether or not you get your, you know, your, your internet points, you know, you know more than you did six months ago. That's, that's incredibly valuable, much more than, than what's what stupid thing you might have said. It yeah, when really I stupid, yeah, if I ever <laughs> engage, yeah, whenever I do actually have a disagreement or ag- or do have an uh, an argument, I guess on Twitter, I make sure to not make it a debate by essentially just asking polite questions. I don't phrase it my you because if it's someone who's like just wrong and stupid, I'm like, no, I'm not gonna waste my time with this. I'll I'll yeah. move on. It's <laughs> you know I will practice at turning the ever cheek here and move on. But if it's something like, no, I think this is wrong, I'll just ask a polite question of a state reasons for doing so in the least offensive manner possible to the point that it might be a bit exaggerated. But it usually gets a way better response than anything else. And it allows me to bow out with dignity if I'm like, you know, sent with my tail between my legs. (laughs) (laughs) I feel that. Yeah. It's very. I honestly, I, I, I. I try my best to understand the arguments you're making against it for why that's bad. But, like, if you, uh, I mean, think about it. how many people you think had a awakening moment when it came to God's existence or the truth of, mm-hmm. of religion, and they go talk to their friends about it hastily, and the atheist friends are like, no, that was just a dream, bro. Uh, that was yeah. just a crazy dream. Like, how many people you think, like, had a chance to come to God and then were turned away because they talked to an atheist friend instead of going and researching and studying and talking to the right people and trying to learn? 
it, it's it's sad to think about. That's why, for all the all my complaints about the Orthodox, and I have a lot. Um, I am I really respect that policy, and I had I found out about it. I had an Eastern Orthodox on the podcast, and I asked him about it. He went, "I'm really not allowed to talk about it right now because of these mm-hmm. reasons." And I'm like, "That's actually more interesting than what I want to talk about before." If we talk about that, it's like, "Yeah, I'm like, let's talk about that one." That's mm-hmm. that's good, but mm. well, let's get into the actual topic of tonight: objective mm-hmm. beauty, the aesthetics, beauty. What is it? Why is it objective? And why is the beauties in the eye of the beholder subjectivism um, wrong? <laughs> Who wants to go first? Well, I can. Uh... Okay, so here's my question. Where do you want to start with beauty? Do you want to tar- start with a general overview of beauty? Or do you want to focus on, I guess, art, architecture, or uh, just trying to prove that there is an objective standard? How about this? Before we get started, let's go around the table, around the mm-hmm. round table, and mm-hmm. um, say what is our favorite pieces of art. Kind of like give a metric for what we enjoy and what we find is beauty and why we find it beautiful. So who wants hmm. to go first on describing their pieces of what, the, what? What is something that you saw? And it's like, I, mean, I have an example. I was listening to the 1812 Orchestra by Tchaikovsky for the first time. And I, I literally broke down. Like it was just, it was so beautiful to me that when I first heard it, I, I could not sink, I could not rationalize it. I had the same experience when I saw the Northern Lights for the first time in a photo. Just a photo of it. I was just like, oh my God, that is the, I can't rationalize why that is beautiful. I'm just experiencing the pure beauty of it. And it's, I mean, hey, I have a photo right here for the background. It's, um, this, you can't see it too well because of the people's faces, but it is a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful thing. That I, I'm just looking mm-hmm. at this. I mean, I'm getting teary eyed. I'm just looking at a, co- a little yeah. photo of it over here. And it's, I, I hate the code, but I would love to go and see those. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, so for me, I've always had actually a lot of trouble with finding beauty in nature and beauty in music. It's only recently mm-hmm. where I've started to diligently make an effort to sort of train my mind to see things that it just wasn't seeing before. It's not that it wasn't there. It just wasn't looking. But mm-hmm. so I ended up resorting to what I actually do. have always liked that is literature. And so mm-hmm. probably I haven't seen Hamlet live, which is probably a mistake on my part. And I'm trying to rectify it, but I have seen Macbeth at the Met and I have seen Richard III at a, was it the Globe Theater in London? I, uh, and Richard III is one of my favorite plays of all time, and so is Macbeth, both way shorter than Hamlet's Five Hours, so I can actually recommend them. Uh, <laughs> but there's some, the Hamlet, not the Hamlet, sorry, the Macbeth production at the Met was especially interesting to me because it managed to, it basically, it's a very good example of a point that Scruton actually brings up, which is that it represents that what the actual actions that it's depicting are sordid and dirty, but through its representation of them, it manages to redeem them in some way and lift them to a higher plane to give catharsis to them. Uh, it's not just a lot of this happens as well in the uh, end of the uh, turn of the century. By, by that, I mean a turn of the 19th century. Uh, writers like Emilio Zola, Esther uh, de in Portugal, and Machado de Assis in Brazil, where they're usually depicting not pleasant things done by not pleasant people, but their poetry in language and sometimes even the beauty they describe is even just in a casual way they describe how a woman is lost to adultery, the metaphor they use of a, a 
ship without a captain running, finding its way down a waterfall, essentially a boat where the occupant is sleeping is so beautiful. Uh, and it's it just this criticism of it where in the very, very, where some of them would deny objective beauty exists, they in fact affirm it by and how they write and how they do things. So my favorites would be, I guess, Shakespeare's plays. And uh, my favorite novel is uh, Don Caixmurro by uh, Machado de Assis, the Brazilian writer. What's I could I wasn't knew it that what what does that translate to in English? The title uh, Don Caixmurro. Uh, Don is just like it reads like Don, like in Don from Don Juan, but mm-hmm. it means like Don obnoxious or something <laughs> like that. Where it's just this very little title that he sort of mentions in the beginning of the book and it's i actually don't recommend it to foreigners there's another book of his that i do recommend because it's there's less brazilian things in it if i or it's easier to understand which is an epitaph of a small winner where it's the pos where it's a memoir it's from a fictional character but it's posthumous it's uh, uh someone writing it after they died and the way they be- he begins is hilarious because he says, look, I could tell you the, in- the incredible story of how I managed to get this published in the mortal realm, but that's not what I'm here to talk about, so let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and it's this very cynical view of the world, but it's cynical because it's written by essentially this atheist, godless character who has this uh, science, I think, of humanitism, just sort of his parody of, uh, <laughs> you know, atheist humanism. Uh, and dar- and the sort of a social Darwinism, and it's vo- and it's so cynical, but at the same time he's sh- he's friendly with the reader. Uh, Machado himself was sort of this. Uh, he didn't really know what he was, but he was a Christian, especially by the end of his life. But he was always Christian. Uh, but he just he didn't know what he was denominationally. He couldn't really identify himself with any denomination in Brazil. But uh, there is this very. Uh, Christian criticism of it, if you of this view, if you look between the lines. Very cool. I'm Cass, what about you? Yes, um, I would sort of agree with, with Bolgo. I don't know if, if necessarily. Well, so I'll say I think I think uh, literature and especially theater is, a, is an interesting direction to go. I kind of want to at some point we should talk about film because I think that's mm-hmm. most people's mm-hmm. encounters with with art nowadays, and I think there's a lot of interesting things to say there. But yeah, I think. Um, a lot of the of the classical urban baroque era music i think um a lot of uh bach's work you know it's as cliche as it is something like toccata and fugue in, in d minor mm-hmm. um is just you know especially I've, I've i've been fortunate a couple of times to be at a mass and they'll have a, a an organ and a, and a and a talented organist and just getting to hear that is just is just um jaw-dropping um i was also thinking about things like um handel's messiah is I, mm-hmm. I think one of the one of the best English language uh, explicitly Christian Catholic works that there is, um, and then I think uh, so I, I dabble a little bit in German. I think a lot of Goethe's poetry, especially a lot of his later stuff, um, um, or even just um, uh, Damnation of Faust, is mm-hmm. uh, extremely powerful. And and you know, like Bolgov was saying, just the, the the ability to describe things that are transcendent in a way. And just mm-hmm. com- an incredibly, um, yeah, you, you can't help but be moved by them. Mm-hmm. There we go. Sorry, my, <laughs> I, I was muted so I could sue, and my I was trying to type something so the guy watched it, and I kept hitting the unmute button, and now my chat is for the zeros. <laughs> um, sorry about that, everyone. 
I mean, this is a round table. I'm not just hosting. You guys can just, you know, talk amongst <laughs> yourself and go from there. I don't have to request and ask you. I'm going to have to do all the work here. So, um, <laughs> there was something, so something I wanted to talk about, and I think, I think Volga mentioned this, is talking about, um, uh, you know, beauty in art or in, I guess, just, just art in general, artificial things, man-created beauty versus beauty in the thing itself. And I think this is, um, I'll, I'll just sort of get started here because I think it's an interesting place to to jump off from. It's something I was thinking about uh, prepping for this is that the the thing itself is always going to be the most beautiful. You know, art is always going to be less beautiful than the thing that it's trying to to display the beauty of. And it might mm -hmm. be able to, you might be able to connect to it in a very powerful way. But um and I can't remember if, if you made it public or not, Kill, but I know you, you shared a really good um, uh, lecture on sort of the, the nature of beauty and, and mm -hmm. what beauty is in, the, in an objective sense. Yeah, and I think this idea that it, that it reveals the essence of the thing, you know, it, it, it's that which, which connects you to, to the, the good in something. Um, and obviously the good in a, in a, of a thing, of, a, of whatever it is, a, a man, a plant, a, a beautiful landscape, is going to be greater in the thing itself than it is in any kind of any human attempt to, to reproduce it. Um, you know, the, the, so I, and I think people sort of get lost in that as they think of, they think of beauty first as being the, the art that we make to try and reflect that beauty. But I mean, the most beautiful things are going to be the things themselves that, that are able to best show, show their own beauty. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get away so I can stop doing so much. I'm hungry. <laughs> Would you like... Okay, so now that we've all said uh, our favorite pieces of art, I guess, or, or, or pieces of beauty, in fact, because I, I guess we could have said the Grand Canyon or something like that. Uh, do you want to... Okay, so do you want to go over the justification for objective beauty or do you want to jump right into... Um, aesthetics of architecture, aesthetics of painting. Let's, or let's talk about it a little bit, because I think it's something that uh, Kale brought up, this sort of beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing. It's something that I think is very misunderstood, and I think it's mm -hmm. it's pretty symptomatic of a lot of the confusion that people have about things being in general, is that they don't understand mm -hmm. what beauty is, and either because of or therefore, like, they, I'm not sure which of it's a chicken and egg thing, If but not understanding beauty and not understanding being are... are um, Either symptoms of the same same illness or the or the cause of the of the same thing. So I, th yeah. I think let, let's talk about that a little bit if if someone wants to give a okay. brief rundown. Well, I can um, actually. Uh, okay, you, you go first, Caleb. Okay, I was gonna say. Um, so my thing when it comes to like they don't understand how to put this. I'm going to make an argument that I listen to listen to a Thomistic lecture that beauty is something that is fulfilling the. Uh, how do I put this? A beautiful chair is a chair that performs the form that fulfills the form of chair, or fulfills, fulfills whatever the form it partakes of. So, a beautiful chair is a chair that is a pure chair, in the sense of whatever the form of chair is. Which sounds like nonsense until you actually try to really parse it. Everyone, okay, I know what he's saying now. Um, and so, how do I put this. Um, I had I, I had a great notebook and I wrote out a bunch of great stuff in it, and I left it at school. And so, I'm trying to like draw from memory what I wrote down during the lecture I was listening to. Um. I'm sorry, guys. I'm drawing a blank. I had something. I drank a sip of wine. I lost it. <laughs> I lost it. Belkov, you take it. I, I lost it. Okay, so I'm actually going to make an interesting argument from Scruton, where he's especially talking about man-made beauty here, uh, where he makes the claim that objective beauty does not is not the same as universality in the sense that objective science is also 
universal science. It seeks universally valid results. Objective beauty does not. And I'm going to quote here, in the judgment of beauty, the search for objectivity is for valid and heightened forms of human experiences, forms in which human life can flower according to its inner need and achieve the fruition that we witness in the Sistine Chapel ceiling, in Wagner's Parsifal, or in Shakespeare's Hamlet. Criticism is not aiming to show that you must like Hamlet, for example. It is aiming to show to it is aiming to expose the vision of human life which the play contains and the forms of belonging which it endorses and to persuade you of their value. And to top and just to finish this, it is not claiming that this vision of human life is universally available. So this he's responding specifically to claims that uh you know, there are cultural differences in uh, aesthetic beauty. So let's just compare what would look good in a street in Paris is not what would look good in a street in Tokyo or in a, or in like 19th century Tokyo, a difference between that and Paris. Uh, these are differently built cities. They have different contexts. So if you're an architect trying to build something to fit in the surroundings, then, well, you're going to build differently in Tokyo and in Paris. But what he makes, he's like, okay, sure. But that doesn't mean that there aren't standards that are cross-cultural, that they seek uh, these objective reasons, even if they're not necessarily universally applicable, because these culturally applicable things have a objective, have something, let's say, tying them together that is cross-cultural. So he goes on later on to say that the objection that aesthetic reasons are purely persuasive, they appeal to subjective experience, that is, simply reiterates the point that aesthetic judgment is rooted in subjective experience, but so is the judgment of color. And is it not an objective fact that red things are red and blue things blue? End quote. I like that a lot. I think it's very well put. And I, I think it, it points to... Um, if, as soon as we start focusing on man-made things and, and the beauty in, in man-made art, um, that you're already you're already dealing with with things that have a, a very different um, existence than natural beautiful things. Mm -hmm. Is as soon as as soon as you make something, you're making it for a purpose. Like in 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 a, in a sense, those things only exist in your mind. Like Caleb talks about, you know, the the chair, like you know, a beautiful chair yes. being a chair that is the most chair you can be. Yeah. Chair is not is, isn't really something that's out in the world. You know, there's there's I, I wood that has me. certain shapes, but chair is in your head. Chair is entirely something that exists in your mind because it's entirely functional. It's that thing you sit in. It could be a piece of wood. It could be a piece of metal. It could be a rock out in a park. Those are all the the chairness isn't in the thing itself. It's in it's in your mind, and therefore the beauty like since it exists in your head, the beauty has to come from your head in a certain way. So so I think even even beyond the the cultural aspect of it mm -hmm. um getting lost yeah beyond the cultural aspect of it there's a there's a not necessarily subjective but an entirely mental aspect of, of mm -hmm. man-made beauty that you can't you can't sit there and say that what's in that chair because there's that chair isn't there the chair is in your head um so there there are things you know okay it can, can fill that function and that can be a very universal thing and how well it does that um but already as soon as you're talking about man-made things you're losing a lot of that beauty because you're losing the the existence in the real world and uh just to complete just to go on beyond that in that the sense of beauty of man-made things especially is subjective but then okay where do we get our standards of taste scroon's argument is that uh it's essentially a complete virtue ethics argument which i did not expect because scruton is very despite having affinities for virtue ethics 
he's, you know, very Kantian in his approach. Uh, but he essentially says, well, the standards of taste are the standards of the virtuous critic. The critic who, essentially, if every act, if we seek virtue in every activity, then why would a virtue ethicist exe uh, exempt the contemplation of art from virtue? Why would you not contemplate, contemplate art that increases your, your virtue or whose contemplation somehow makes you better than art that doesn't, that doesn't have qualities that uplift you? So just to have an example, uh, Scruton brings this up in his documentary, Beauty, where a modern artist essentially put her untidy bed, her messy, sweaty, untidy bed in display in a museum of art in London. Um, and he compares this to, uh, I believe, a French 19th century French painters uh, of his untidy bed, of <laughs> his sweat, of his nightmares and his struggles with himself and with his art that resulted in that. And in his painting, there's a kind of redemption of it. There's a kind of uplifting of the gentle light falling from the window on his own struggles that, uh, that he sees. But in the bed, it's just the bed. There's nothing there <laughs> rescuing from itself. Uh, and so which one is more virtuous to complicate? contemplate that which tries to rescue a uh, sad and sort of thing or that which just is sad and sort of I never got the uh, people say that that is degenerate art I never got that until you explained it was right right, 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 right. I'm like oh yeah degenerate art is one that does not lift you up yeah art is one that lifts you up like I, I did not when someone says that art is degenerate I did not fully grasp what they were saying until just now when you explained it like that. I'm like oh no that's why it's degenerate it's not it's, it's literally bringing you down like the contemplation is, of it is not virtuous. Essentially, exactly. it's essentially just like a very virtue ethics approach to it, and you can just say the contemplation is not virtuous. It's not virtuous. Done. I'm done with it. Yeah. Bye. <laughs> I like that a lot. I'm actually watching that. What, what, what other film is his? He said he had a documentary on beauty. Yeah, he had a documentary on beauty. It's very shallow compared to the book, but it's only 15 minutes long. It's free on YouTube too. Uh, if not on YouTube, then you know on Vimeo or something. How? Uh, and I, all my I researched Walter Scruton and beauty lectures and videos, and I did not find a documentary in my searches, and I'm upset now. Uh, let me see. Uh, Scruton beauty uh, Vimeo. I can find. I know because I also I remember like years and years ago I watched it at like school and I was 18 in philosophy class. Why beauty matters? Vimeo found it. Uh, and fun thing is that uh, I don't know why this is actually kind of bizarre to me. Every single copy has Portuguese subtitles. Every <laughs> single one. So it's why beauty matters, and then between parentheses, porque a beleza importa, which is the Portuguese for why beauty matters, and then dash legendado, which means subtitled. Every single version I can find online, and I must think that it's Portuguese philosophy teachers just showing this to class after class, because that's how I found this. I sent it on the private chat, the Vimeo link. Which I just I don't yeah. know why this is. I don't know why he <laughs> this would because I don't I don't know. <laughs> I have no clue. I'm gonna watch that after this because uh I honestly I need to sit down and just read more screwing. Like I need to sit down and just be reading more and not honestly I was hoping with this new school schedule I'd be able to read more books, but I get home and I can take a two hour nap. And so it's like ah <laughs> oh, the opposite of what I should be doing. Um, you can act, I think beauty as well. So you like audiobooks, right, Caleb? I love audiobooks. Yeah. yeah um, on aud I know beauty is an audible, and so is the the. I think therefore the I drink therefore I am his wine yeah. one that you were talking about earlier. I think it's either coming to audible or already is. Mm. So be on the lookout. Thank, for thank that, God for audible. audible. Yeah, I'm listening to Solo of the World. It's great. Uh, but yes, where were we? Because I've completely lost <laughs> yes. track. Yeah. So so the 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 um. Elevated bed and the and the base bed. Yeah, <laughs> um, essentially. And I think like 
it also points to sort of what's what is the end of art because you can have and I mean what what is the end of any of any artificial thing? But like we talked about the chair, you know, it's something that you sit in. The the art is to make you appreciate beauty. You know, the, the point of the end of art is is to to connect you with beauty, mm-hmm. um, and it's the the beauty of what. And so that's why the 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 ability for the the painted bed that has the that that uplifts and can can point to something greater than just the despair of you know an unmade bed. Mm-hmm. has the capacity to be more beautiful because it's it's it is pointing at something that is more mm-hmm. and so when Caleb's point about gender art if your if your point is okay here's my you know whatever it is the you know uh urinal that was on i can't remember that was that was that was a art exhibit was somewhere yeah it was yes yeah, exactly right it was jump. Yeah, or, or uh, a banana on a desk that was the one. Like, on a stool was a banana <laughs> yeah. on a stool half yeah screw talks yeah. about Duchamp briefly yeah. in beauty as well <laughs> And even even if they're I mean, they're they're making some bigger message or whatever, but the the they can't be more beautiful than the the highest thing that they're pointing at. Mm-hmm. And so if the, if the best thing they're sort of doing is social critique or you know critique of criticism or whatever it is, that that kind of gives an upper bound on how beautiful they can be. While something like you know a, a if you're depicting you know we talk about the roof of the Sistine Chapel, the heavenly, the the um, you know. Mm-hmm. The transcendent, those you know, you can you can certainly make you know bad representations of those ones that aren't particularly mm-hmm. beautiful. You know, you can try and you know draw the crucifixion with a crayon or something like that. But yeah. the the capacity to view beautiful these things is is infinitely more because they are pointing at something that is infinitely more than than this, these this more degenerate degenerate art. Yeah, yeah, and uh, actually, Duchamp. Uh, there's an interesting thing about Duchamp. Duchamp's criticism with the the toilet was actually he was making fun of other artists. Right. essentially doing that and so Scruton actually has an interesting comment where he says uh duchamp uh, made a joke in the 20s quite a witty one at the time by the 60s it was entirely played out in cliche and by the 2000s it's cynical and horrible <laughs> which, I, which i just think is very very true <laughs> yeah 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 Wait, <laughs> we all spoke at the exact same time. Um, yeah, <laughs> I was reading today, uh, Jacques Maritain's uh, Art and Classicism. Mm-hmm. And by reading, I mean trying to skim it before the podcast today. Yeah. Um, but he brought up a point about the art, he wrote about the artist in a, in a sense, in a bit, uh, about the artist and when he creates art, has to how do you put it? Um, this happens when I don't take notes. Again, I don't understand what he was saying. I think I don't, I don't. I never know what he's saying. But what I drew out of it was that when an artist creates to create something like a painting, he is, uh, in a sense, trying to create something that is uplifting, that has that has a virtue, and by doing so, he is tra- transcending his own. How do you put it? He's transcending what he is and to create something more for mm-hmm. others to enjoy as well. And there's something I think interesting about the idea when you create something that is a high form of art you are like for example when you, you do uh you talk, so doing everything you do is if you're praying you know uh, be praying all the time do everything you do as you can do as a god when you are creating art that is transcendent you're doing something un, like a like, the parts of critique of a Catholic beauty is that we're doing it for ourselves and we're, in reality we're doing it unto god uh i think there's an interesting thing we can talk about there about your removing yourself from the equation to create something that others can enjoy that will transcend their experience too a heavenly uh, plane. Mm-hmm. I think that's, what, only, I, that's what mm-hmm. I do out of it, at least. I don't know if that's actually what he was trying yeah, to say. Yeah, no, Scrooge talks about this, but from a perspective of a spectator, not the artist. Mm-hmm. He's actually not that concerned with the artist himself in mm-hmm. beauty, which is interesting. He's concerned with the judging 
of beauty from the point of view of a spectator and from the point of view of just when we walk by and we we see buildings for example and is that beauty is usually disinterested in the sense that you you lift yourself out of it so for example um <clears throat> the difference this is he highlights the difference between what he calls erotic art and pornographic art essentially <laughs> an erotic art would be something like botticelli's venus where it's actually her her body is incre incredibly misshapen if you actually look at it there's no muscular tension the skeletal the skeletal structure is bizarre but the, but she's the goddess of love she's the goddess of eros and in her face you see this aloofness she's not inviting you to desire her but her body is still on display and there's other reclining nudes where there is no invitation to desire by their facial expression mm -hmm. this is just a presentation of their body as if their clothes were see-through but you get a this is titian's nudes he talks about but you get another french artist boucher where the women's faces are actually interchangeable there's essentially nothing <laughs> there they're usually hidden away they're not looking at anything specific they're kind of just looking off not even into the distance but <clears throat> excuse me at a random object and it's Essentially, you're left with nothing else but just titillation. Uh, and it's a soft form of pornography, and there's no desire, or not desire, I should say, but no invitation to contemplate the beauty itself, to see it as apart from you, not as a means to your gratification, but as an end in itself, to use Kantian language. So, for example, he talked about the film Wild Strawberries by Inger, Ingmar Ber Bergman, I believe, uh, right. And he says what it tries to create is that not to insert yourself in it, because he actually hates the expression, put yourself in other people's shoes, but to imagine the other, because you don't have the same point of view and perspective as the other person, but to separate yourself from it, acquire an aloofness and see it as separate from yourself to see these people's ends as their own and not as yours, to see mm. this romance play out in a, in a world that isn't purely to your satisfaction, as so, you know, uh, as bad superhero movies do. Good superhero <laughs> movies are actually capable of, uh, I think, doing quite well in this regard, but a lot of there's been a lot of bad ones lately. I'll just put it like that. Yeah, let's, 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 because mm -hmm. then things that speak deeper truths that you can actually have virtue is found in movies. Uh, I guess if anything you want to add before we move to the uh, movie topic. Uh, no, to kind of go ahead and start on the movie topic. Is that our, or do you have something else you want to say on that um, regard? I wasn't say. Well, one thing I want to add is um, I have a I had an old joke I used to make before I really got into philosophy was that the reason uh, a beautiful statue is important is because it is personifying the form of woman, and a way that is beautiful because it is not. It's beautiful because it personifies the form of woman in the most beautiful sense, which is why big titty gossips and hentai is art and not uh, not porn. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was my own joke. But I, I, I used to troll a lot of Catholics that saying, "Listen, you have the statues. I have hentai. It's the same thing." <laughs> I actually do have something I want to add to this because he has a very interesting. Because essentially, he he borrows a part of sexual desire. He kind of summarizes it in Beauty, his book, Sexual Desire. That is, and he summarizes it in like a five pages or so of his book Beauty, when he's talking about erotic art, which is that the true erotic art individualizes the subject that it is portraying and it's not usually the woman in the sense that the woman he's not actually representing the woman whom he painted he kind of transforms her into something else so botticelli's venus had a model but he's not actually representing her 
he's representing the sort of both pre and post Christian image because, you know, I don't think the ancients really had a this very Marian image of an untainted goddess. Because if you look at the myths of Zeus, especially when he took on the form of a swan or a bull, he, he wasn't exactly an untainted individual, let's say. So it's both this pre-Christian, because it's using pre-Christian iconography, but a post-Christian Marian uh, treatment of the subject is this uh, untainted beauty. And erotic art individualizes the subject much like sexual desire does. You just don't, you don't see the person you love sexually as, you know, a merely replaceable woman, if you're a man or a man, if you're a woman. You see them as an end in themselves. Their reasons become your reasons. So if they don't like something, that actually becomes a reason for you to not do that thing. Aside from, you know, you know, if they don't like it, then it's hard to get hard to get your pleasure or something. It's not just a means to your ends. And so the true erotic art individualizes the subject and makes it their own. It reveals their personality and the shape of their body and how they hold themselves in their face, what they're looking at, instead of something for the spectator to get his rocks off. And that's, I think, what I wanted to say until we can move on to I, I, I enjoyed that. That was great. I that's, love that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a, a bit of a tangent here, but on the on the subject of movies, because there's a, a couple of um I've I've listened to some uh pretty good uh movie criticism, not super recently, but there's been some, you know, a lot of long form uh movie critiques are sort of available mm -hmm. now. People will spend longer critiquing bad movies than the, the movies themselves actually take to run. Mm -hmm. Um but one of the things you'll often hear, especially with some of the more like sort of um, I'll just go ahead and say it, Star Wars. Uh, yes. <laughs> Star Wars films. Yes. But, and people will try and explain why these movies are terrible. And one of the things you'll hear is, is what's the what's the goal or what's the standard by which you say a movie is good? And there's this sort of okay, does it does it give you a big emotional reaction? Does it is it mm -hmm. you know does it does it connect with my emotions in some way? So okay, I see I see big explosions. I think it's cool. I see this person die. I see this person win. It makes me happy. That's what makes it a good movie. And this has sort of just become accepted as like okay, yeah, I guess this is what makes a movie good or bad because people don't really have a good answer for it. But it just it what I, what's occurred to me is it's so incredibly backwards is that. If the 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 end of art or the 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 object of, of beauty should be the intellect or the, or beauty acts mm -hmm. on the intellect. Yes. So if, if the if the 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 film to be a to be a good film or a good work of art, it needs to engage the intellect in some way. As it needs to point the intellect towards something amazing, um, and it can use emotion to do that. You know, if if you're you know you're this is something mm -hmm. that I think um, the the Catholic Church understands very well. But you'll see a lot a lot of um, sort of antagonism to this idea. Um, especially among Stoics and the like, that, okay, emotion is somehow is, is is defective in some way. We need to sort of you know deaden emotions mm -hmm. so that we can have our pure re Vulcan pure reason doing yeah. things. <laughs> I'm mixing my, my Star Wars and my Star Trek uh, uh, deliberately. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm aware of the difference between the two, uh -huh. um, <laughs> but that that it's that emotion is a good thing if it's serving the whole. If it's if it's ordered towards your your higher good, and the, if the, if if emotion is is engaging you in a way that, that works properly. Emotion is great. You know, anger can be great if it's righteous in a nation. If it spurs you to to confront injustice, wonderful. Um, but it's, if if you're if the emotion is the end in itself, then it's it's you're, you're you are working out of order. You're doing the wrong thing. And in that sense, if all a film is doing, if the highest end of a film is to is to give you emotional stimulation. In my mind, it's effectively just pornography. You know, it's a different yes. kind of pornography. It's it's food porn or it's you know CGI porn or <laughs> actual porn or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But it really is. It's not it's not serving the purpose of art because all it's doing is trying to stimulate you. Word chosen advisedly emotionally. 
Um, and so I, I, this, this idea that, okay, even if it's not necessarily a big message, if it's not doing anything intellectual, if it's not engaging you mm -hmm. in, uh, as, a, as a full person with the intellect as your highest power, then it really ends up just sort of being pornographic in a, in a kind of vulgar way. And that's, I, I think a lot of modern cinema has sort of fallen into this trap. It's like, okay, well, it made me feel good afterwards, so it must be a good film. Mm -hmm. so you're, you're, you're effectively walking. What's that? It's so Ragnarok was his Batman v Superman. <laughs> These are my personifications of what good movies and a bad movie is. Kinda, yeah. That's a great point. But uh, I actually am a big advocate of the idea that uh, our fact as uh, why can movies be so? Um, I actually, well, I think I actually have a, an excuse for that. So, uh, let me read it off real quick for the people who are going to listen to this when I put it on Spotify. Mm -hmm. uh, why can someone ask me in the comments? Why can movies be so bad it's good, but the same isn't? The, but it, this isn't the case for other media. No artwork is so bad that you, it's actually good. So uh, I, I actually think this is not exactly true. I think a couple of uh, you know architectural professional critics could walk into a very badly designed building and have fun laughing at it. I think that's entirely possible. I actually think that we kind of do it all the time. If you look at like, wow, I can't believe you're designing it like this. Or when you look like, you know, the idea that uh, we're rebuilding Notre Dame as this like weird book thing, right? Like that's laughable. And like, if they do, like we're going to have to laugh so that we don't start crying because that would be a crime against humanity. But yeah. you know, it's, we, you can certainly, it's not so bad that it becomes, you know, a good movie, but it's so bad that it's, um, an experience you can't, really watch, you can't watch it disinterest you can't watch it with disinterest which is what <laughs> is the ex normal experience of beauty as the thing for itself you're watching it to laugh at to laugh at it with friends i mean oh, i don't know who would watch the film the, the room alone but you say. watch it with friends if you watch it alone you're probably deranged and you should seek help <laughs> because like wh why would you do that i mean it, it's a thing you watch with friends one of the most fun I ever had with my friend is we watched uh, Disaster Artist, which is uh, James Fergus' movie yeah, about yeah. the making of the room, and then we watched the actual room. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. you go from a fantastic movie about a terrible movie to the actual terrible movie. It's an experience. I can't describe yeah. like, I can't describe it, but it's an experience that I think everyone should do because it's, it's amazing. That's probably a lot of fun. And uh, just to go back to, to Ein Kapp's point uh, earlier about uh, – you know, emotion and the intellect. I'm a big advocate of the idea that as rational am animals, rationality is not is not this easily separable thing from emotion. So I mean that in the sense that emotion is reason involving and often reason seeking. So it is true that we can have spats of emotion of depression or something, and we don't really know why, or we could just see something and be happy. And we don't really completely understand why. And, but we, uh, but most of the time, in normal cases, we actually do search for reasons for it. So when you see a cathedral or something and you say, I find this beautiful, and someone asks why, you're not like – it's not the same thing as, oh, I like uh, broccoli, and someone asks why. It's not like so – you're like, nah, I just like it because I like it. It's usually – no, no, because you know, it's big, it, it's spacious, it you know lifts your eyes up to the heaven because of how it's directed – um, it's got this and this detail, which, and you know, you usually link it with a chain of metaphors if you're a really able critic, uh, and how it affects your soul. Uh, but it's it's reason involving. So, for example, if someone says, "Ah, this movie, it had a really good emotional climax because this connected with this connected with this connected with this," 
Uh, and in truth, you know, someone points out all the flaws in that. Like, no, it didn't. In fact, this thematically contradicts this. And this leads to like a hole in the logic. So it doesn't really make sense. The reasons for your emotion are, you know, your reason involving and the reasons for your emotion aren't there. It's like, okay, I'm glad that you had a good, uplifting emotional experience. But the contemplation of works of art, which it's an illusion. It's like walking into a mud hut and thinking and thinking it looks like the Sistine Chapel. It's like I'm, um, it's great that you had an like the emotional experience of watching the Sistine Chapel, but it's a mud hut. Please, it's <laughs> not the Sistine Chapel. So and you can point it out to him. You can reason with him, uh, with them, I guess. Uh, and to get to this point where you say, no, 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 these are the reasons why, and it's more virtuous if our reasons are solid. We're not, we're not this phantom or illusion. It's not this, it's a very utilitarian mindset that what matters is the pleasure we receive from it, not the reasons for the pleasure as well. Mm. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of it. And I think yeah. it's, it's, you know, inherent in liking virtue ethics that you're not a big fan of this utilitarian mindset. I think it's really, really well said. And in the same sort of vein, like you said, okay, you know, if you, cause you'll see this a lot as people say, okay, I like this art piece. I don't like, don't like this art piece. And, the, and they won't really be able to say why. But it's not irrational. It's not like, okay, it's, it's not just, you know, lizard brain like color. It's, there's, <laughs> sorry, one sec. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> there's, um, yeah, I've, I've, got, uh, I've got some some new kids that are not sleeping great. So my apologies if that's coming through. <laughs> no problem. Good. But the, the, it's, there's, there's, re, there's rationality behind it that you maybe had that a lot of people either haven't analyzed very well or haven't analyzed very completely or aren't capable of doing that well that upon, you know, a lot of serious reflection, a lot of serious thought, they probably could articulate in some way. Um, but that's very difficult to do. And that's, that's the, the wonder of be beautiful things is it puts you in touch. Okay. That something in my brain, something in my intellect is saying, this is good. And I don't know what it is, but I'm drawn to it in a way that, that should invite And again, if you're, if you're ordered properly, if you're, if you're working the way you should, it should invite you to think more deeply about, okay, what is it that's beautiful about this? What is this telling me about being in some way? So I, I agree completely that it is, it's, it's intimately tied, your emotion is intimately tied to your reason in ways that we usually don't appreciate. So one thing I'm going to bring up is two of my favorite movies are Batman v Superman, uh, extended <laughs> edition. Uh, uh -huh, okay. Despite all the flaws that the movie has, I can't yeah. not enjoy it for one, the, uh, what I get out of most is that there's so many things to find in the movie to think about later. I mm -hmm. watch the movie and spend hours just thinking about the seams, despite what maybe logical conflicts that it might be, it might not be in the film. Uh, there was there are some of the uh, uh, regular versions, but the extended cut kind of fixes those problems. Um, mm -hmm. My other favorite movie is Muppets Take Manhattan, the musical. I haven't I haven't watched the extended cut of uh, BVS, and neither have I watched the Muppet musical. So, I'm gonna I be wanna, honest, I, I have I wanna, no I clue. About, so I think the best type of movies are actually musicals. Um, what I, mm -hmm. I, my argument for that is, it not only is it a thematic scene you're going to get from the movie, not only can I give you something to think about and talk about, um, have the introduction side to it, it's also having a musical side to it and the beautiful dance numbers that can be done. Like you watch, uh, I'll, go, I'll go to a recent movie, watch The Greatest Showman. You cannot be, you cannot not be amazed at the dancing. You know, it's, yeah, it's I've watched the scene. I've watched a few of the music scenes in YouTube. I haven't watched the yeah. whole movie proper though. It's, it's a great movie. It it, 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 it triggers everything. It has questions. It it offers some intellectual questions to ask. Like, okay, is he taking advantage of these people, or is he actually helping them out? Mm -hmm. um, the is it, it hits everything we've been talking about. It hits every single one of those metrics. 
emotional response, yes. Intellect, yes. Musical, yes. It, it hits multiple. This musical is still capable of hitting. Musicals are capable of hitting multi tiers of uh, what you find beautiful in art, which is why I think musicals were the peak of Hollywood is when they actually was combining. Like you, you ever watch uh, the Disney movie Fantasia? Anybody here oh, watch yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, really long time ago, but yes, beautiful movie. It's music and oh, it's yes. uh, wonderfully drawn art and a cartoon, and they let the music inspire the artwork. Just watch that and kind of think about how people would just listen to music and go, "I'm imagining mushrooms," and then they would draw that. <laughs> That's a crazy thing to think about, but it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite movies is a Ridley Scott's The Duelist. So it's a very different uh, movie from what you're talking about. <laughs> and it's, it's actually not that long. It's like one hour, 30 minutes or something. Uh, and it's based on a true story of, of two French soldiers who had, like, I think a string of, like, 20 duels almost, like, each getting, like, increasingly deadlier during the Napoleonic Wars. And it started with just this slight little thing, and it just kept escalating. And it's a very good character study of these two men and the shots complement as well how they're feeling and how they're thinking. And, you know, it goes from these beautiful open scenario shots with them, you know, sort of representing that they're very small compared to the world and the conflict that they're in to these very intimate, close, claustrophobic fights where, like, you know, one person almost gets their ha arm hacked off. It's not an especially gory movie, but because of how quick they show these things and you don't really have time to look at the effects close hand. Cause it's like from the eighties or something, the movie. Uh, so it looks incredibly brutal by the sound effect of a sound design, uh, the, the acting itself. And, you know, there's one, one of my favorite scenes is when, you know, there's an end of like, I think this is their fifth or sixth duel or something. And they have their seconds and, you know, people are starting to take bets of which of them is going to die first at this point. And at the end, they're so exhausted and cut up and one can barely use his left arm that they just kind of drop down and faint. And it's just this very claustrophobic scene. And you think one of them might <clears throat> actually bite the dust at that point. And it's just, it's just great. I'm adding it to my watch list now because mm -hmm. that sounds uh, that sounds great. <laughs> <clears throat> so real quick, I want to touch back on something Caleb said about about musical sort of being the I don't I don't this is not necessarily the words you would use, but sort of this this higher this elevated way of of doing filmmaking because you're adding these elements into it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really true. And I think that's why one why I think film is such a, a powerful medium now and musical in particular. Um, because they can engage in so many ways is there's the temporal aspect, there's the visual, there's the auditory, there's, there's so many things you can do, um, to engage the senses and for, from those to engage the emotion to engage the intellect. So you really have the most potential to do some amazing things with that medium. Um, you can also, you sort of fall the farthest with it if you, if you fail to do so. Yeah. Uh, and it, it reminds me of how, how, um, you know, a couple hundred years ago, that that opera was the was the equivalent because it was combining yeah. all these different aspects. You had the the stage performance, you had the dancing, you had the singing, you had the the libretto, um, and that there was just all these multiple ways that you could that you could interact with the audience. The audience could be brought into what you're doing. Um, that sort of made it a higher art form. And I think um, going back to the the question we had in the in the chat about why movies can be so good, so bad they're good, and other things can't necessarily as well. I think that's part of it because there, there can be so much more to a movie. You know, a, a really, really, really bad painting, even if it's awful, there's not necessarily a lot of layers to it. Whereas there's a lot of there's a lot of mistakes you can make in filmmaking. There's a lot of different ways that can that can mm -hmm. unfold um, to to give it this this. Um, you can have a, a lot bigger gap between greatness and and terribleness that you can't necessarily have as effectively in in something mm -hmm. like a painting or a or a static medium. Um, 
I'd say the only, the only thing that sort of compares in a very different way is literature. You know, the obviously when you're engaging directly with the intellect and the, not direct with the intellect, but the closest you get to directly with the intellect through something mm-hmm. like writing, um, where you it's really sort of um, pick and shovel kind of tools that you have to try and engage. You can do a lot of very powerful things that that, that you can't do with with other medium. Um, and so you, I think you can very easily have books that are so bad that they're good. Uh, yes. But I think it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a question of, how, of what levels of complexity you can have and what the potential is of, of a great artwork. And I think it's, it's very hard to have. Um, yeah, I think the difference between really, 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 really good um, artwork and really bad varies a lot from medium to medium. And I think film oh, yeah. gives the, be- the best potential to have something that's just absolutely awful but still expansive. I mean, you can have a, you can have a terrible movie that takes a long time to watch. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas a terrible painting is, is, you know, you're, you're looking away from it as quickly as you look at it. Yeah, and that's sort of the exactly. end of it. <clears throat> yes. I'm Cass. What was your, what did you have a list of What is your favorite movie? Everyone's listed what they've really enjoyed. Favorite movie. It's going to be something either really, it's going to be something cliche. Cause I like a lot of, I, I know then again, you said Muppets take Manhattan. No wrong answers here. Manhattan is a solid movie that I will tee you up every single time. So, uh, and I, I don't know if I've seen that one. Muppets, uh, Muppet Christmas Carol was always my favorite Muppet movie. I thought that one was amazing. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I got a, I got a comment right over there. I mean, Muppet nice. right here. fantastic. So, and uh, my answer has probably changed in the in the past couple of years, but growing up, I've always said Fight Club was one that always really just just stuck with me. Yeah, movie a lot. Um, the the movie and it's everyone always gives example. The movie's better than the book. I think the the author even agrees. Like, well, you guys did a much better <laughs> job than I did. Um, it's an example of that I know. Um, but again, something that's just that is just incredibly well made and does point and you know has a lot of very very visceral aspects and a lot of very. Um, um, emotional resonance, but does, and it's, and, you know, it's, it's not high art by any stretch, you know, it's not pointing to any kind of really mm-hmm. transcendent message, but I think it's, it's sort of the, the best you're going to get out of, out of mainstream, mainstream filmmaking for the mm-hmm. most part in terms of trying to, trying to engage the intellect in, in interesting ways. Yeah, actually I didn't say my favorite movie. I said one of my oh. favorites, but my favorite would be probably the whole of a Lord of the Rings trilogy tied with uh, Return of a Jedi, not because it's the best movie of the original trilogy, but because um, I love the Luke Darth Vader scenes. And I watched watched that movie pretty much every day when I was like four or five years old. Because my dad (laughs) was a big Star Wars fan. It is literally my same movie. I will will enjoy episode five. It's so good. I I love episode five, but episode six, Luke and Vader, the entire scene, everything about it is perfect like it's, it's so i mean weird. i've got chills countless times when uh he mentioned when vader is like hunting luke down and under the dark star- star- staircase half is light. And, oh, it's so good yeah and, and uh he so says good. um he mentions his sister and luke just flips out and the music yes. turns on and then they have this fight and he cuts off his arm and then he you know he throws his lightsaber away and in that moment he also redeems his father because he says his father was a jedi you know, he was this it's, this knight in shining armor, this knight of the round table, to put it in Arthurian terms. It's so, such a great so thing. I'm I'm going to jump in here, so because I, I was having a discussion with someone that has that got way too involved in one of these debates about the best best of the original trilogy. Uh huh. Um, and, and the answer the the sort of answer you're supposed to give is is Empire is the is yes. the best one. That and he was he was he was pulling his hair out like no this is it's so like because it ends on such a down note and it's so bleak. Whereas like you were saying, Return of the Jedi has this incredible redemption arc and it's, 
mm-hmm. you know, if you, you can make a, a very poor, not great metaphor between the the original trilogy and some kind of salvation history, right? Mm-hmm. Is that you you have you have this low moment, and then you but you and you need the redemption at the end, and it's a beautiful redemptive moment. And he was just pulling his hair out, like why why do people not see that this is just this amazing, beautiful? Yes. You know, people get upset about the Ewoks, or but like it's it's happy. Like it, there's yes. there's there is joy at the end of it, and there's there's the struggle to get there. And I I think what he was missing, and I, and I want to hear what you guys think about this, is that people are, are in in modern culture, people aren't good at appreciating that redemption. They they, they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, as it were. Is that they're they're tied to empire because they they see their present condition and they see their fallen and they see the they see the 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 misery and the evil and they think that's real you know you're like you know it's it's raw it's real and they don't think of the the good or the redemption as being real because they 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 don't have that foresight they don't have a sector where they can't look ahead to to the promise of yeah. the good that's coming so yeah. discuss because I, I yeah. yeah absolutely i mean our society can't one society lacks any form of actual forgiveness we can't understand. We don't understand what Dempson and yes, people now. What is the best thing? What is the best medium? What is that? What is the uh, what is the best visual art they've seen? People, a lot of people are gonna say Bozak Horseman. What's I enjoy Bozak Horseman? <laughs> I can watch it and I I watch it in a, in a critical fashion. That's why I enjoy it. The lesson in that movie is life's a bits and then you die, or life's a bits and you keep on living. That is not that should not be the lesson for anyone. <laughs> That is yeah. a terrible lesson. I, I had to stop watching Bojack because I just it was too depressing. Like it, it I, was too much. And, and you're right, because it's people are like, oh, you know, that like there's there's this this resonance with something that is just despicable. I mean, the and it's a, a trend in a lot of very popular shows where there's there's no good guys. <laughs> is every every I mean you are supposed to relate to the characters, but they're all just irredeemable, horrible uh, human beings. I don't want and that's, and that's where they say I want characters to look up to, I want archetypes to personify. Are you right to like you? But they, they need to they need like you if you even if you, you have someone that's that's where you are and they're they're very low, shouldn't you see them overcome that at some point and become yes. something greater? <laughs> mm-hmm. But no, like I had to stop Bojack after the first season because I was just like this is I'm just sad when I watch this and so people love yeah. it. I watched um, every season, every episode twice. In it's fact, so of what yeah, it, in a weird fashion, one of my favorite series, a miniseries, I guess, of all time, Young Pope. Uh, I'm, I'm starting this. at small. I'm starting Dude, at small. No spoilers. Watch it all the way through. No spoilers. It, yeah, no, I'm not going to spoil anything. It's so good. But, uh, oh, shit, I can't spoil. Okay, so there's a character <laughs> who has a fatal flaw. Who, who, But he, at heart, he's an extremely good person. But he has this terrible flaw, and he's picked for this great task of essentially administering justice and investigating something and bringing it to light. And he doesn't know why he's the person that can do it because he only sees himself as flawed, um, especially before God. Even though uh, it's implied that he has a touch of grace because he had a vision of uh, uh, the Holy Mother uh, and when he was a young man. But at some point you realize why he was fake for this because he's probably one of the best people you see. That he's just he connects with everyone. When someone else starts crying due to the abuse the abuse they suffer, he starts crying and commiserating with them and consoles them despite his own flaws. I mean, even when you see that like he he's carrying on this investigation and his room is a mess, but in the corner of a room you see that he's actually done his his due diligence. Like you could see all these things drawn together. He has this whole like almost this conspiracy theory map of like all the possible evidence and how to bring it together and how to present it. And despite the fact that he's kind of a mess 
in the outside world because he purposefully sheltered himself to not be a mess. Uh, and it's just this very powerful, re you realize why, and it sort of redeems his flaw in your eyes as well. Because until that point, you could maybe see why he was such a good person, but you weren't so sure. Now you can see it in action. And it's so, oh, it's so good. And uh, like yeah, I agree that people don't really see forgiveness. I think uh, a lot of the ancient cycles and archetypes did. I mean, the Luke Vader story is basically uh, Galahad with, uh, what's his name? What's the night that fell in love with Guinevere? Right-hand oh, man of King Arthur. Lancelot. Lancelot. Gal Galahad was Lancelot's son uh, <laughs> uh, when he, and this is going to sound weird, slept with a woman because of witchcraft. He thought she was Guinevere, but she wasn't. It's weird. Whatever. Moving on. Uh, Galahad, <laughs> Galahad does what Lancelot couldn't do, and he finds the Holy Grail. Uh, and in this sense, he kind of redeems uh, what happened between Guinevere and Lancelot. And, you know, just to raise a question here, there's actually a few questions about this in the sense that, like, people aren't sure whether, you know, the original cycles actually had the whole Lancelot-Guinevere thing. But nevertheless, in the end, which is essentially the, the Anakin Skywalker, Princess Amidala love story, mm -hmm. uh, it's forbidden, but it happens anyway. But in the end, if, even if we ignore that, he does what his father fails to do, what drove his father mad. Uh, he finds the Holy Grail and he redeems him, and he does what his father was destined to do. Mm -hmm. He destroys the Sith, much like Anakin was destined to do. Or Anakin does it in the end, but only because of his son. Look, I, I want to point out that, like, in the old time, people used to have like these stories that we would use to, to draw more lessons on really the stories of everyone's life. They're like, be like this, be like this. And like Hercules did have these stories they would tell, like great, great epics. And every generation has the epics, you know. I'm thankful that mine was Star Wars. Mm -hmm. uh, or some people's is Bible characters, you know. That's why they had the like, Vezitares and the Old Testament stories so prevalent that you could have heroes to look up to and draw from. And you look at uh our, today's heroes is Harry Potter. And you wonder why everything is so cringe. <laughs> By the way, uh, because because I've been bringing up Scruton a lot, he has an essay on this that he himself read in YouTube. It's on YouTube for free. Just search up Scruton Harry Potter. And it's oh like God. 11 or 10 minutes. And it's an essay he wrote on Harry Potter. And it's excellent. It's very short. Just to bring this up. And it's uh, it both it has because he kind of he acknowledges that Rowling has actually a, a good writing skill. Uh. She actually has a she has a very especially with naming. In fact, I think the only other English writer I could think of with such a good penchant for naming things was uh, Dickens, and the th the second best would be someone like uh, Tolkien. Hey guys, guys, he sewed yes. up. He's here. Oh, hello, gentlemen. Hey, can you hear me? Hello. I can hear yes, you. Can. can you hear me? <laughs> I can hear all of you guys. It's a privilege and an honor to be with you. I apologize for the delay. Um, <laughs> all good, man. Families and mm -hmm. parents and two kids and a dog and a wife and laundry. And uh, we yeah. got snow up here. We also got snow up in these parts. So Life happens, man. pain coming back. Yeah. So um, what did I miss? <laughs> We've been uh, talking um, <laughs> movies, beauty, steeper stories, what makes art beautiful, what is beauty, Star Did Wars. Um, a lot of topics. <laughs> Ooh, okay, so I, I think I, I stumbled into the uh, Harry Potter, uh, the end of the Harry Potter dissertation. Yeah, very briefly. Has, has, <laughs> has anyone read any of uh, Father Ripperger's uh, uh, thoughts on Harry Potter? I no, actually have not. not. I have not even heard of it. Okay. I'm going to so, write it down. 
so father uh, chad ripperger he's a uh, he he's he was with fssp the fraternity of saint peter and uh mm-hmm. excuse me, i'm trying to plug in my my thing here. um and uh he's his bag he's an exorcist he's one of the most mm. um he's one of the most prolific exorcists he's the, he's the exorcist for some county in colorado some diocese in colorado and uh so he gets around and um the position that he's taken based on his work is that you know you probably don't want to get too deep into harry potter because apparently from his work and from the work of some of his associates is that a significant amount of the names and you were talking about how Rowling uses names and describes things and such. A lot of them apparently are demon names or they're apparently somehow connected to the black arts or like legitimate black arts. So, I mean, just a thought. <laughs> that's what I've heard in my, that's what I've come across in my travels. But, uh, apparently, um, Twin Torn, my favorite Christian Catholic apologist, did an episode on his podcast with... It says, uh, it says, Council Trent 202, Father Weapons at Hey Part, Healthy Skepticism. He did yeah. an episode on this. I'm gonna, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna copy and paste the link and drop it in the chat for uh, the group chat. Yeah, also, in the private chat, I've also put on a link to Scrooge's talk on Harry Potter. It's only 10 minutes long. It's not really mm-hmm. a talk, it's more of an essay he wrote and then did an audiobook for it. I have no idea where the nice. if it's from a whole audiobook or if he just did this thing. I'm trying to find it, but I've never been able to. Yeah. The, 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 the one the, the so the 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 catholic that you know argument against it after people have read it is that there's a lot of nebulous moral ideas in it you know the the, mm-hmm. the idea is that you know um outcomes are independent of you know what you put into them or you know mm-hmm. uh, things like um, you know, deception, willing deception, and all those kinds of things. And I get, I get all of that. And I'm still sort of on the fence about, you know, um, the whole, whole aspect of it from a Catholic theological perspective. I will say this as a counter argument. And I was talking to my wife about this. My wife is a Protestant, or she was raised mm-hmm. Protestant. She, um, her father was a Methodist minister, Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm. Um, the if you think about the story, the overarching story, what is the you know from the from the beginning of the first book all the way to the end of the last book, is that Dumbledore knew that Voldemort was flawed and was going to be defeated. And there was no other way around the problem besides Voldemort getting defeated. It was just a matter of time and just a matter of the pieces falling into the right place. Now, what does that sound like? You know, it sounds like the, the, the story of the Almighty's promise to the mm-hmm. faithful that, you know, I shall, you know, I, I, I shall protect you to the end of the world. The gates of mm-hmm. hell will not triumph against you as long as you keep my commandments and remain faithful to me and um you know and and every evil in the world is a permission um as a means to bring people 
back to sanctifying grace and to test mm-hmm. the faithful and to make people more saint-like and mm-hmm. you know and um so that's the one thing and i was when i was thinking this through i said wait a minute evil will you know he was he he knows just enough to be dangerous and then that's it <laughs> mm-hmm. so i haven't i haven't watched harry potter since i let's see last time i watched it yeah, uh, i haven't watched it in a long time last time i watched it, i think i was in the most my most the part, the part of my life where i hated Protestants the most but didn't have <laughs> didn't have any alternative yet so i was just yeah. uh, i was just an angry Protestant with no alternative um and so i i think that's the last time i watched it. this is why, why i enjoyed it <laughs> And I'll think that the, the the way we sort of got on Harry Potter, Caleb was making this point that this is sort of the the best we have now. And I think by by the standards of of literature and film in the last you know couple of decades, I think you know Harry Potter is is, is fairly exemplary in terms of of there there are good messages in there, and there are there are good um, mm-hmm. allusions to to the divine, even if as, as flawed yeah. as they may be. Um, mm-hmm. At least it's pointing to something good. But also, the other thing was Caleb was saying was you know looking back to you know the the reason we have these stories and these archetypes is they're they're serving some purpose. If you go back to you know the the Greek myths or whatever, is there's or you know even um, there's the the uh, Aesop's Fables or some of my favorite the the, the these German the the mm-hmm. stories to make your bad children behave, is that these this artwork has an end to it. And it's the it's the betterment of man in some way, and and depending on the culture, that betterment could be different. You know, you want to be strong, you want to be, obey your your parents. Um, the highest, of course, being the sort of the the Christian version of this is you is to be saints. You know, the ultimate end of, of art should be to, to make it make the the viewer saint like to make them to get them closer to heaven. Um, and that's what's been. But the 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 problem with a lot of current art is it, it doesn't even have. You know what? What is what is the ideal that our culture tries to point towards? You know, the goal of art is it? What what is what values is it trying to promote in the individual? And like we were saying earlier, it's it's feel good, and it doesn't really aim for anything more ambitious than that. Even even in the in the in the society we live in, there's no there's no sense of making yourself a better person. There's just a sense of enjoying what you are more. So but, something again, that's why something like Harry Potter can stand out is because it does. You know, there there is some message there of of trying to to be good in some way that I think is lost from a lot of, a lot of contemporary art. But I'm actually, if I can present a challenge to the feel good thing, it's not even that anymore because you guys brought up Bojack Horseman before uh, Skanderberg Skanderberg had arrived. And like, I haven't watched Bojack, but from what you guys have described, it seems to wallow in its own misery and to enjoy (laughs) that. Um, And to, you know, it pokes fun at it, but it doesn't poke fun at it in a, in let's Critical say you way. can sort of put po- yeah because you can sort of say look uh you know uh, the, uh this too shall pass essentially you can make jokes of which the aim of a joke is to say this too shall pass this is nothing uh you know because there is essentially because there is something higher than this there is an afterlife there is a god there is a christ who has redeemed you uh and you know you can make jokes at point in that direction that doesn't seem to be the jokes of bojack horseman and all the other <laughs> Let's say adult cartoon shows. <laughs> now it's the, the final line of Bozak Horseman is the two characters who have been depressed the most are finally happy and not even happy. They're just like coping. And on top of both smoking, <laughs> on top of both smoking cigarettes, and um, one guy goes, oh, "What can you do? Life's a bitch, and then you die." And so he goes, "Maybe, maybe life's a bitch, and you keep on living." That's the lesson. The lesson is life's a bitch. Deal with it. That is not. That's the entire more of the like six seasons, and this is what you come to. 
it's 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 <laughs> oh, I hate it so I I hate it so much. I hate yeah, that so, I watched it three times. What? Oh my. <laughs> The, the I second really, I can I, I can barely understand the second. <laughs> like I said, I couldn't make it past the first season. But yeah, no, I think it's that's a really good point, Will Goff, because I think even that even that that um, and I think this is sort of inevitable. Is if is it the highest thing you can sort of achieve is is an emotional reaction. Eventually, that too becomes perverted, and it sort of becomes this this masochism, um, or mm-hmm. it, it, you you sort of fetishize the even the emotional response. Is that if 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 all if all we can strive for is this empty pleasure that we're getting out of other media, eventually it's eventually that become you become cynical of that, and you just end up trying to to deaden even those those base yeah. emotions. You poke fun at the empty pleasure, causing more empty pleasure. You don't poke fun at the empty pleasures or even the pains of everyday existence by you know poke by pointing at something higher or. Uh, or something else, uh, you know, Robin Hood has actually a lot of good, it's actually a very humorous tales. There's a lot of dark humor in it. Uh, I think the Sher- I remember reading the sheriff's death as a kid. I don't remember how it went in the original tale, but it's actually quite dark. I, re- I remember finding it as an eight-year-old. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of humor on it as well in the se- when he was entertaining the king and that there, you know, there's a pointing to transcendent duty there. And the merry men are merry. You know, they're happy despite the fact that, you know, they probably live in miserable conditions uh, or relatively miserable and their life isn't easy. They're merry uh, and they're trying to do good by others despite all that. And, you know, there's a sort of upliftingness to it. It it's ver- it contemplates an exercise of virtue and it tries to make you more virtuous by pointing at these things higher than you. I'm not sure it consciously tries to make you more virtuous, but it ends up doing so. Well, I think if, if you go ahead, Caleb. There's a lot of movies now that you can draw great lessons from that there was never the intention of the creator. Yes. <laughs> Which is like, it's weird. Like you watch, like, what was it? Um, I remember someone talking about the movie Gone Girl, it's Ben Affleck. And everyone's like, the lesson they intended for was how terrible marriage is. The essence people took away from it was no, you should love your wife so much that these are the things you just you accept that you are there, you're together forever, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like the lessons you can draw away from modern media, it's like, I don't know how to explain it because these movies are on the what they're intended for are so terrible, but what you get out of it is so good. I don't know why it's like that. That's why it is why it's happening, but I'm glad that it is. I mean, I don't I don't remember there's a I don't know if it's a comic book artist or something else who's pretty much whose politics like and view in the world I remember I heavily disagree of it might be Alan Moore who probably for, Alan Moore. He believes yeah. in people. for like Lizard the gods. worst that he's capable of, he's kind of this when he's not being on propaganda mode like I mm-hmm. like he is in Miracle Men, he kind of can't help but make something good. Yeah. Like Rorschach dies for ultimate values, yes, in a very <laughs> powerful scene, and he says, "No, there is good and evil, and I will die for it." And he says, "Do it. I don't care." Yeah, uh, I, and, I you know, voice, like I'm not going to compromise. There is no compromise with evil, and this like even if he's try, he even if he intended that to be like. I don't know, like not the Crazy good guy. Dying. He can't help himself. He can't help the artist in himself making yeah. it good art. And mm. good art tends to point to something higher, or tends to make you contem- to make you virtuous by contemplating higher things. Well, speaking of speaking of Alan Moore and then mm-hmm. Watchmen, obviously, I and in this conversation, I am drawn to everybody's favorite divisive director, Zack Snyder. Mm-hmm. And My favorite movie is Batman v Superman. <laughs> uh, 
hey, Man <laughs> of Steel is an incredibly underrated and much maligned movie. I don't, I can't remember how many times I've watched that movie, Same. and and not for the fact that you know Henry Cavill is super but he's just you know he's he's right at that point where he's just gonna blow up. Like he's just right there. Walking into Whistle, so it's like he's the best he's, part of it too. <laughs> uh, yeah, and 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 Witcher's got so many problems because the yeah. showrunner and the producer is just yeah. a nut job. But poor Henry. Yeah, poor Henry. God bless him. Um, I would just be Bond. <laughs> I, that's the, they keep floating them. They and you know what? The Man from Uncle was a pretty fun movie. Mm-hmm. He was a great movie. He was, yes, it was very underrated. Very funny, actually. It's almost yeah. a joke for a minute, too. Very good. He, it was it was a satire unintentionally. Yes, you know? because Very like Man from so. Uncle originally was kind of comedic-ish, and then mm-hmm. they they played the movie straight, and then it was you know, you, you know how Weird Al used to do style parodies. It was almost that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but going back to Zack Snyder, he makes those kinds of statements. I think he does them intentionally, but I think everybody doesn't see them that way. You know, I was 300 was back on Netflix and I had to watch it. And yeah. And the, it's just like the cinematography, the people that malign the cinematography that it was, you know, he used the, the graphic novel as the, you know, as the, you know, the guy for his that, style. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's it's a powerful flick, and whatever you want to say about the Spartans or the Spartan society and all that kind of stuff, it was just a powerful movie. But again, one of those things where he's making the statement that these are our principles, these are our values. We are going to defend our lives, sacred lives, and sacred honor against the invading hordes. Um, you go, t- and then and then you go. And then you go to, you know, and, and it's in all of his movies. I mean, it's in Watchmen, but that's a function mm-hmm. of Alan Moore writing. Even in something like Sucker Punch, which is universally hated by everybody, but it's about a bunch of abused girls who seek justice against their oppressors. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, and then you get into the, and then you get into the DC movies and a, a guy I was in a group with, we were talking about them. He goes, you know what Zack Snyder does or did with those movies? He pit the Bible against Ayn Rand just to see who would win. <laughs> and, I, I like I argued that, and I argued that the Bible won because, yeah. you know, I mean, the biggest takeaway, like everybody, you know, the biggest takeaway for me in that movie, and I want to know if any of you guys caught this, was... Batman as St. Paul. Huh. Think about that. Here you have the the um, the you know the consummate you know um, he's he's fighting against bad guys. He takes up a crusade against Superman. He sees him as a as a as a existential threat to humanity. Which is, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, kind of was St. Paul's bag before he converted, and then through 
Superman's sacrifice, he is seeing the error of his oppression, his his sinful ways, and then mm-hmm. he becomes the um, you know the evangelist, and he redeems himself by the the end of you know he, re- he seeks to redeem himself in Justice League, and he you know Great depending on which version you watch, you know, is it uh, on this podcast? The Snyder Cut is the only one that exists. Yeah. Okay. Good. Fair. Good. Mm-hmm. So you know, and you know, and then like look there's there's tons of scenes in man of steel that are i mean because listen superman is moses he is jesus christ i mean those are the archetypes those are the those are the Mm -hmm. themes that they pull that schuster and 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 siegel pulled and you know the scene where he's in the, the scene before he takes up the the cape against zod and he's in the church and he's talking to the priest that's gethsemane you know Mm. he's saying i'm gonna do this i'm just Mm. you know clark son of jonathan i just want to go back to being a farmer but i have to do this i've been asked by my father to do this i mean kind of blasphemous but you know but you know (laughs) another way you know mirroring that idea um going down into hades to save humanity mm-hmm. what, what, what was that what was that drag out knockout fight in the at the end of that movie i mean it's 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 um yeah so there's there's not all of them you know not every one of them are doing it just for you know pleasure or temporary mm-hmm. temporary enjoyment um, i was watching braveheart today braveheart's back Great on movie. netflix too great movie you know mel gibson son of very traditionalist although <laughs> kind of wacky traditionalist um catholics saint mel gibson saint mel gibson there's there's so many he, he snuck so many catholic things into that movie yeah um I love him. but um and again another one just a man against you know a man against it. This, there's so many. Uh, I want to bring this up. I don't know if it's still happening, but last I checked, um, they're, they're making a new Fountainhead movie, and Zack mm, Snyder hot. was casted. Zack Snyder was casted as the director. Like he was, yeah. he's the guy you go behind trying to make it. So I don't know if it's still happening, but we might be getting a Zack Snyder uh, Fountainhead movie. What's I'm going to be completely honest, guys. How the hell do you make a Fountainhead mo- one movie? They made they made it, it, they made it before. Uh, uh, yeah, was it well, good? The, the original, <laughs> the original, the, the well, the original Fountainhead is a classic. It was, um, oh, big name actor. Um, it was, it was, I, in, I it was, it was in the really 40s. Hey, I watched it in the I, I, um, so I'm, I'm prejudicing Fountainhead because I don't think any book that has an architect as the protagonist is you know I, i'm an engineer by trade so i'm looking at them. but um um we read it i had a um i had a, a professor in college who made us read it in my management class and uh no we didn't we actually didn't read it watch the movie and um you know I, depending on who you ask you know it's like the other the other libertarian you know manifesto or it's just abysmal and you know, I'm of a ladder camp, but um, 
yeah, it, it, he's been trying to make that for years. Like that's been his white male project, and um, to see it happen. Yeah, I actually think his style yeah. would very much fit it. Um, I'm interested. I I hope someone uh just it just demands his producer some demands he uses an art deco style for everything possible because i mm -hmm. think that would very much fit his directorial and visual style as well as well as fit the fountainhead uh time period as well i mean i i, I don't even think you could make a kind of move i don't even think you could do it in this age unless you no. completely because art is yeah. now Really, I mean, unless you're into architecture, they're nobody. So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to change the who he is and what he does. You know, what what are they gonna do? Make him a tech guru or a tech genius? <laughs> oh or something? God, please no! All right, they could they could maybe adapt it in a little bit where it's like everyone, no one can do architects talk at all. The buildings look the same now, and so they could just like amplify what the story was in a sense, maybe. Yeah, right, I think you could. It could be if, if if it's done well, it'll be amazing. But it's it requires so many small things he's gonna have to do perfectly that mm -hmm. I don't know if it's how doable. Also, I think if he does make it, he's already already hated by so many people. This was being the final nail in the coffin. He's gonna make an Iron Man movie. Yeah, it's, it'd be over for well, him. You know, his career would well, be almost completely done. Well, there's you know what? There's some good news. You know, I think he's getting his vindication because I think Joss Whedon just being. Oh, I hate that guy. A, 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 just a schmuck. Yeah. And recently. And a recently, sexist, racist schmuck. I've been having a lot of fun reading his comments because they're just hilarious. <laughs> I mean. He's gotten, he has no, like, he's completely toned up. Totally toned up. <laughs> Calcutta misunderstood me because English is not her native language. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, uh, <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> Either he's the most, either he's the most base director in in, yes. in Hollywood, or he's just a, a buffoon, you know. No, he can't. Um, if he was honest and like this from day one, he would have been the most awesome director in Hollywood. But he's oh, yeah. been with like people like Anita Sarkeesian and like you know, <laughs> right? Loves them. Yeah. So like, yeah, no, to the trash pile you go. I loved but, Firefly. I thought it was yeah, amazing. No, Firefly but I, that's like the only thing I think he's done that I was like blown so away with. Again, like Firefly is also part of it is, you know, really good because it has like the whole, because Josh Whedon actually does write funny dialogue, but also mm -hmm. the guy who uh, really was kind of the head writer, I believe, is also like an, 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 such an extreme libertarian that he had also written a screenplay for The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Mm -hmm. So it had this push and pull between these two, like, the two creative guys in it. Hmm. I guess so, 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 how's it going? I'm surviving. So I mean, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> so I mean, um, you know, I, 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 you know, he, he, Snyder. I think he got out of his whatever deal he had or with Warner Brothers. He built a big, like, office production, you know, studio in his house. Like I was following it on. When he was building on Instagram, or not Instagram, uh, Vero. I think that's yeah, the, the platform. I already got. have the app to see him. Yeah, 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 exactly. And um, you know, he um, he pulled himself out of the. He pulled himself like listen, Warner Brothers. Besides Harry Potter, they had nothing, and they had people that were just, and they've had people that are hostile to the DC content for something like 15 years like if any of you guys watch smallville i have a box set on dvd 
Oh yeah, it it, it it had such great potential. The first couple of seasons were just really really good, and then what happened was best, they messed with Caruso. Yeah, yeah. Um, they you know they did the merger with um, Columbia, so they became the CW, and then they brought in these whole bunch of new you know executives, and they had the executive in charge was outwardly hostile to the show and they had to kind of shoehorn it into this sort of teen drama format which was kind of baked into the show to begin with but i mean um and and there 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 were rumblings that there was interference well no there, there wasn't rumblings but like even on man of steel the story was that um christopher nolan ran interference against Warner Brothers on behalf of Zack Snyder. He said, listen, I just made you several billion dollars with Batman. This guy has my blessings. I'm an, I'm an executive producer on this flick. I came up with part of the story. You guys are going to leave him alone. And then he backed away. And then they were able to, like, the whole, the whole plot of Batman versus Superman was supposedly sort of, in a way catering to the studio because like mm. introduce, you know, because originally the whole thing was supposed to be like seven or nine movies and, you know, Superman was not supposed to die until much later. There's supposed to be two or three justice league movies and all this kind of stuff. And then I think, you know, Warner brothers started sticking their snout in. And then when that movie didn't do as well as they hoped it did, instead of saying, well, maybe we should have, you know, trusted our trusted the material a little bit more. They doubled down and brought the foot down, and you know all that kind of stuff. Hmm. But um, yeah, that's way for our field of <laughs> the topic for the, tonight. But the, the way we have gone I, very I, deep into Zack Snyder lore. Well, because he's I, he's honestly one of the best directors alive right now. I would say like he's in my top three. Um, and I will say the personal he's gone through some personal tragedy that anyone listening and we all probably know what it is. Um, mm-hmm. and the way the studio fucked him over after that, the his daughter committed suicide is just it's completely yeah. unforgivable, unforgivable. Mm-hmm. And the, um, I'm just thinking, what's else we didn't up? What's else we didn't done to um, oh my god, Wade Fister's career, Wade Fister was cyborg killed it in the Snyder Cut. You compare it to the Justice League version, he's yeah. not even in the movie, he's not even in the movie. And it's like this guy yeah. was a Broadway actor, his first made the most in Pittsburgh. Kills it and decides, even though he could work, play the game and like grow his career, he sticks by Snyder and is blacklisted now. Doesn't do anything, but is sticking by Snyder because he respects Snyder. Like it's, the 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 story behind Snyder cut is so interesting. In twenty years, when we get a documentary about it all, it's going to be amazing. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Do you guys want to discuss actually uh, architecture? Because we haven't touched that much, have we? Let's do, let's do it, man. Let's keep going. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> All right. Actually, so I present- if you gotta dip out to take care of a yeah, kid and yeah. go to bed, I don't blame you, man. You have a you have two kids. One's a newborn. I I, I assume you've been nodding off the entire time. I've, <laughs> I've been jumping in and out. I'm I'm trying to stay present, but if uh, if you don't hear from me, we're we're probably still alive. So okay, good. I'll, I'll, I'll jump in when I can, but I'll let you know if I have to take off. Uh yeah, so I'll just because I I, I kind of had a homework for for today's uh, roundtable, which was Roger Scruton's beauty. Uh, his, or at least a summary of his thesis on everyday beauty, is uh, to make things look right. And if it's a 
It can be if it's your own garden, then they have to look right to you. It's a creating a home that you can sort of stake yourself in. And in a garden, it's supposed to mediate between you and nature. But in a city, it's also mediating you, your home, something that looks right, and others. So one of the main uh, tasks tasks for the urban architect is not to design something of you know magnificent beauty, but to actually be just sort of an engineer and fix the problem of making it fit in. Because one of his uh, things that he discusses in his lectures is that you don't actually need to worry about geniuses like Michelangelo. Like if we look at something like the Laurentian staircase in the Vatican, which I can link here, it actually subverts like pretty much all the rules of staircases. I just linked it in a private chat so you can take a look at the image. Uh, it pretty much subverts all the rules of conventional uh, staircase building of the time, but it still manages to be, be beautiful. So we don't actually need to worry about the geniuses. It's the everyday architects who think they're geniuses who are going to try to make something you know, outlandish to stand out that we sort of need to teach them style because style is essentially like grammar. You're trying to communicate with other people. It's a public activity, much like language is. Uh, it can't just be a one person thing and you're trying to make it fit in. At the same time, it's not purely functional. It's purposeful and non-purposive because you're trying to make it look right and look right isn't just a functional thing like, oh, I wanna make this door frame to attract more customers. You're actually abdicating your own judgment and foregoing, uh, you know, you're not grounding it in your own reasons. You're grounding it in a function. And even then, does it look right to them? And you're sort of abdicating your own responsibility for making it look right. Uh, that's, just, that's a very brief summary and a very convoluted summary to of his thesis on everyday beauty. You all can comment on that or go on a tangent or do whatever you guys want. So I, uh, I have a little bit of, uh, experience in this, in this area because I actually was in architecture school for two years. Mm -hmm. So I, I was in that world and I, and I still work in the business. I don't do design work anymore, but I work in buildings. And mm -hmm. um, I can tell you that as with everything in the 20th century, there was a definite shift from that sort yes. of problem solving um, approach to the almost all style style over substance or mm -hmm. style over form and um you know that's one of the many reasons why i got out of it it was that mm -hmm. you know i i had a classmate who was uh very conservative and mm -hmm. he was not he stuck through it and he went through the five years and he got his degree and he practiced i don't know where he is now but he um he got a lot of flack because he was a classicist. He liked yeah. um he liked neoclassical styles and forms, and he and he tried to do that, and and he was really good at it. And um, you know, I had another classmate. Speaking of pro solving problems, so we had a design project where we had to come up with the the theme was we had to do a new Levitt town. So we had to come up with a new kind of model, repeatable, easily buildable uh, house, residential mm -hmm. architecture. So a classmate or a friend of mine, acquaintance of mine, really, he came up with a new kind of modular 
uh, system, you know, modular system, but it was different than normal modular. If you know modular construction in the United States, it's basically a bunch of shoeboxes that they kind of plug together yeah. into different forms mm-hmm. in order to, you know, create living spaces. He came up with several different kinds of geometric and functional shapes that you could plug together in different ways, in architecturally interesting ways, and mm-hmm. um, to solve any number of kind of residential or space planning problems. And the studio professors and the, the, the people on the jury hated it. He, he, came, he built beautiful models. They work, you know, put them together, made out of paper. You could sort of fit them into each other, explain it. He, it was like on the eve of when the project was due and he had to do presentation and they, they scrapped him and he had to go back and start over again. And I was looking at him like, this does exactly what you guys have prescribed in the design charrette and mm-hmm. you don't want it because you know, modular modular homes are white trash. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> basically what you built here. Which is but but the irony is that no more than a decade, maybe fifteen years later, what's the big hot thing in architecture is um building with shipping containers. Mm-hmm. It's a huge huge new field in architectural design and architectural research i mean it's so new that like the building codes don't even don't even know how to how to handle them you know <laughs> you, you can't get permits to build with them you know i could i could design something i could sign as an engineer and and i could present it to a building department and they could be like i don't know what this is <laughs> what is this <laughs> um but i mean my experience with my in like everything, Pareto's rule kind of governs, you know, 80% is everybody and 20% are the exceptional people. And then you could start whittling it down from there and it, it, it and it repeats ad infinitum. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the architects I've dealt with are problem solvers. You know, I have a school, I have to meet so many excellent kids. I have to, you know, it has to have this kinds of spaces and you know my project manager says I kind of want to put this feature in. So how do I get all that stuff together and I got to keep it under budget and I got to keep it make it buildable and that kind of stuff. Um the very small percentage are those these kind of guys, you know, that were the main people that we studied in school or that were coming giving lectures for colloquium. Um those are the guys that just sort of crumple a piece of paper throw it on a throw it on a big piece of paper and said, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. But I found when I was in school, the practical aspect and really kind of integrating the things about like construction history and then design was just lacking. You know, you kind of had to go and figure it out yourself. You know, you would have a history lecture and you'd learn about past styles. You know, you could out why the Temple of Thebes is built like the Temple of Thebes or why the Acropolis is set up the way it is and why the Parthenon looks the way it does. And and then you can go to construction class and you can learn all about how to do a wall section. And then you go into the design studio and they say, okay, here's some matchsticks. Give me <laughs> a ticket booth. You know, it, it, it was there's no... There was no sort of integration anywhere. It was very difficult. Yeah. Um, but I but well, go ahead and finish the shot. No, 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 that was it. No, good. Okay. Um, so real quick, speaking of architects, so I'm gonna say our screen real quick. Um 
I saw this yesterday, and it made me so angry. I had to save it for this for some <laughs> for people. Uh, save screen, Chrome tab, Twitter. Okay, let me know if you, uh, is this full screen to y'all? Uh, yes, it's a video. Okay. Can you hear it? You... You I think that? I can. I think okay. I can. This is on. This is a TikTok on Gothic architecture. I'll mute myself. Medieval architects build these incredible Gothic churches. Like, how how would you calculate? Like the weight and the stress, and you know where the center of gravity should be and stuff. Oh, we didn't do any math for them. We just built them as high as we possibly could, and then when they collapsed and killed a bunch of people, we we're like, ah, that's too high. This is how all modern generation views Gothic architecture, and they just look at it and they assume there's no way they could do math for that. They didn't have calculators. But <laughs> it I don't. Me, it made me so angry because it's like. I'm no, sure some Gothic churches collapse, but I don't think uh, I don't think their their whole method was trial and error because I mean, that's they, a lot of work. They were better <laughs> and, at math than we were. They were good at math. Yeah, they, they were actually, really yeah, good and, at building it. And in fact, and in fact, they had a number of very good. They 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 did a lot of their practice based on rules of thumb and the rules of thumbs mm -hmm. that were developed based on experience so they they knew that if I were, they were working x material that they were going to be building of y height that that mean i had to use z shape and it had to be so 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 big per unit of height and that's how they did it and um you know they were models you know um mm -hmm. Structures famously don't scale, but you can kind of get a sense of how they work. Um, but yeah, they were incredibly, you know, they, they, they had a good sense, and a good set of rules for how they um, could lay things out. And if you go through it, it's all very regular and it all, you know, mm -hmm. the, the um, once they figured it out, once they just replicated it and they knew that they had hit on it. Um, but even going back to ancient Greece, you know, um, um, the the idea of the golden rule um, was something that was a means by which to make something look right. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the whole bag. And when, when they stumbled upon that based on observation of nature and consideration and a little bit of math, they said, yeah. this is it. And it, it, it's in everything. And, it's, and, and you know, even, even the, the, the curious thing that they did with column layout, you know, if you, if you look at, say, the Parthenon, this is an old chestnut from architectural history, that mm -hmm. columns are not straight. They're not plumb. Mm -hmm. They curve very gently. So that because you're never looking at yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. I've been there. Yeah, I remember that fact. Yeah. And the Romans did it too. Mm -hmm. A little less, and you can kind of see it. Mm -hmm. But um, everything was based on observation and making it look right and then establishing systems by which they can replicate these things and make them very stable and make them last for a long time. And, um, you know, um, that might, that might be a good lead into the, uh, the Twitter thread that I put in the chat from our friend, um, Ozzy Mendias, who is a smart dude, good follow him and, uh, everybody's friend Cyprian are, frequent commentators back and forth on each other, but he put mm. that old, um, you know, that old comment about 
comparing the medieval cathedral to the Novus Ordo church and you know the you know the overused quip this is what they did in backwards medieval times and this is what we do in modern um modern uh, modern enlightened times (laughs) and and you know and cyprian comes in and he does his whole sort of um you know his he he he, he's got little nuggets of wisdom that he kind of different things but then i i responded i said yes however the purposes of those two buildings are different Mm -hmm. that's the gag you can figure out what the purposes are different purposes then you can realize why they look the, the way they do. This so, was the, so there's the the first one, the Dark Ages, and then there's mm-hmm. Modern Enlightenment. Just mm-hmm. compare and, those people listening. And the 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 point is is that the theology reflected in each of those two buildings is different, is mm-hmm. fundamentally different. And that's 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 it. It is getting to be late for me. I got school uh-huh. and I get to the gym in the morning. I got two more questions, and then uh-huh. I'm gonna ask you give you plugs. So, All right. first question: What's what do you guys want to talk about on the next roundtable? And yeah, it's, 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 it's some ideas because I need to, I need to know what to actually be studying. We still have to myself my already exhausted list of books. So, what is something you guys would like to talk about on the podcast? Hmm. So I'll throw out sort of the two ideas that I have in my head. And obviously I'm sort of preoccupied with fatherhood right now. Yeah. Um, but I would, I would love to sort of dive into either uh, masculinity or family or I, 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 I think as you had some, had some comments previously on, on ideas about family. And I think there's a lot there um, as it relates to, to society at large. So I think something in that vein would be a lot of fun and something that I'd be um, would have too much to say about um, at this point because I've been thinking about it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that'd be that'd be the biggest one that I would love to get, love to get into. While it's if, you know, once assuming I can I can rest enough to to form coherent thoughts about it, I would really <laughs> enjoy being able to talk to that talk about that. I'm I'm down for that topic. What else mm-hmm. guys got? Anything else? You want? I'm, I'm, I'm I'm trying to compile a list of uh goals and topics for the paleotomism entire thing. All right. Yeah. What is there any books or literature you would love to see us discuss as a roundtable? Uh huh. I'm not sure. I'd have to think on it. Uh, cause I hmm. Yeah, I have to think on it because there's a there's probably a few novellas or like short hundred page books that are probably very interesting um, to examine from a, a Catholic's perspective, especially if they're sort of. Um, you know, mid-century atheist books. I think Albert Camus actually, his short works are actually very interesting. Camus is especially an interesting figure because I think his PhD thesis was on uh, the early church fathers and Neoplatonism. Uh, so he he actually has a book, I think it's called, a, I, it's a called Neoplatonism, Neoplatonism, Humanism, and uh, Early Christianity, I think, which is his PhD thesis. Uh, so he's this very interesting figure, but I think it's, might be interesting to one day critique one of his shorter books. It's for only like a hundred pages, big font. Uh, so it's not like a chore to read and he's a good writer. So it's like, it's very, it's very smooth reading. Uh, he did, he did, he won the Nobel prize for a reason. Uh, <laughs> so that'd be interesting to critique uh, from a Catholic Christian perspective. 
Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what else. Maybe, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a few very short, like, plays, which I mentioned earlier when uh, Skanderberg wasn't Skanderbeg. Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your, your username. <laughs> no, that, you, that, that, you was, that was the next you question. How do we pronounce <laughs> yeah. your name? Okay. Yeah, so, but like, uh, yeah, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, it, uh, Skanderberg is is how I'll hang out in the in the chat mm-hmm. for it. My, my, my name is, it's, it's George. It's the, it's the Slavic, <laughs> sure, okay. it's the Slavic spelling of George. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you know, from the, from the bio on the, on the, on the website, um, he, he was the, he's the nationals. He's one of the national Slavic heroes along with, mm-hmm. um, uh, Hunyadi and Vlad Tepish, which one, the third or the fourth. Um, he, he led a coalition of, uh, Albanians and Greeks and Slavs and Wallachians against the Ottomans, and he was pledged to uh, the King of Na- uh, King of Naples or King of Venice, one of the two of them. And he was j- the commander of Pius II's Crusader forces. Mm-hmm. Um, he's uh, the hero for my ancestry, my my ethnic ancestry, and um, he's a he was. You know, he's a hero in a lot of ways, a sort of unsung hero. He's still, you know, he's still seen as a hero all over, all over um, the Balkans. And uh, he's, you know, I, I torpedoed my last Twitter handle, so I need, and I, I mean, you can never get away from that that damn place. So I figured I'd I'd build a new one and uh, use that guy. And uh, personally, the internet has never used your real name, so um, I mean. I'm saying, hey, you know, except Caleb, <laughs> except Caleb. <laughs> but he's trying. But you're trying Late. to be an internet. You're trying to be an internet celebrity, so it's cool. Well, uh, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure he's he's already achieved that at this point. He's he is he's he, the celebrity of the get, group. You get people. You just go, hey, you want to come on my podcast? Yeah, and they like, say yeah. Yeah, yeah. sure. I, <laughs> I see what it is. is I sell him on he's doing a book, which is easy. Or I say, hey, do you want to do an explain to me like I'm five? Where I get to ask really easy questions and you don't have to think too hard. Uh-huh. And they say, yeah, an easy podcast, finally. And I just. You just go from there. It's I fine. mean, look, I've to be fair, I don't know if you've managed his nag Garvin yet, but I've seen him on like uh pe- like on a podcast with less subscribers than you discussing Young Pope. Yeah, I, I, like, I watched that the other day. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> so you know, he kind of just answers, yeah, if I, if he's got the time. Well, I did email him a, yesterday. Yeah, after his personal tragedy, he kind of has to take care of two kids alone. Yeah. Uh, so what? No, well, what's the story? So. I I I I have my own thoughts on Yarvin. Um yeah. but what he what happened I, this is I'm this is news to me because I don't follow oh, I'm not his, in, uh, I'm not in the mold bug here so his oh. wife died of a predictable I think genetic disease they knew she had it her father died of it she died when she was like late 40s early 50s they knew she had it 10 years ago she okay. got progressively worse and you know by the end it's probably one of the reasons why his pandemic response was so bad is that like yeah, pretty okay. much anything could kill her at that point, like yeah. the slightest thing. And she was filled with like tubes. He, he actually has a pretty good poem about it. Uh, he had some great, he, he honestly, had two really good poems. Sad, but he's really sad but really writer. good. Uh, he actually is. I was very, very impressed. Uh, but you know, he has to take care of his two kids now. But if he has the time, and he doesn't well, really I, care about your audience size. He'll just say, "Yeah, that sounds like a good well, time. I'll go on." He's gone, but he's gone on CMD podcast where he's like to talk about he, when he, in his writing. He'll list you he, he said him all the times. Um, 
my ideas aren't worth reading if you have read these six people. And here, list them. It's uh, Burnham, Hopper, uh, Carlisle, uh, uh, Kadu- uh, Eric Von Kadutladen, and a few other people. And I've seen him do podcasts with everyone on that list but Laden. And I, I love yeah. Eric Von Laden. I, I love Arbor. I would say I keep my hands on I try to read of his. And so I emailed him. And I'm like, hey, do you want to come on a podcast talk about Laden? I've never seen him talk about him before. And so I'm hoping because I'm giving him an opportunity to kind of talk about someone he's referenced but hasn't talked about yet. He'd be like, oh, an opportunity to expound on this one guy. So I'm, I'm hoping, yeah. hoping to nab him. Moldbug was actually who introduced me to Ladin. Uh, I remember Ladin it was like so a good. very weird gray, not gray mirror. It was a, uh, what's the name? Uh, unqualified reservations post mm-hmm. where it was like, I think someone criticized Ladin and he said, you aren't fit uh, to, you know, you are, <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, you aren't fit to be his jockstrap or something. <laughs> it was like something like that. Kula, but, but like Mises always, every once in a while, Lou Rockwell, the mm-hmm. Godfather, would put something up on yes. LRC, or or a daily would be like a Friday daily on Mises mm-hmm. Mises.org would be a Kula didn't you know something that he wrote. Yeah, in this was around the time I started reading Mises and uh, got in, and this was before I even got into LRC too. So you know, then I I and you know I got this because this was also Moldbugs very much like. I think he still does this where he – I think he's a daily Mises.org reader. <laughs> he yeah. said this before. He said his yeah, computer yeah. has a yeah. permanent even... open socket to Mises.org. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. True, which is hilarious. <laughs> but like Kulandin like uh, uh, is, so, is so serious. Like he's, he's such a, a nuclear bomb that mm-hmm. – if someone were to blaspheme his name, he'd come back from the dead, reach up from the mm-hmm. grave, and strangle him. Like and with with just with just a couple words. I mean, he's yeah. just like Dude. his piece, "Monarchy and War," is one of my favorite things I've ever read. It is incredible. Oh, I'm going to his I'm going to his book now, um, "Leftism," and his mm-hmm. chapter on equality and like the idea we have equality and even like even equality under god he breaks down as being dumb <laughs> it's just like yeah. the idea i think is no one like oh god equality under god is the only form of equality i respect he breaks down like okay not anymore i guess he's just incredible i, I can't i love him like him and doc my talk about two great people to read um so uh, hoping, i think he'll like doing that because he just very recently like a month ago he went on with academic agent to do a stream on yep. carlisle so i think That's what i got the actually, idea I think I'll like actually quite enjoy so, uh, doing So, I mean, I, I've, I've had problems reading Irvin just because I, yeah, I, 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 I find his, he's, he speaks like a teenage girl. But um, yeah. I might have, I've been saying to myself, I need to do it just like I need to well, read more of Hoppe. I need to get through Burnham. And I need, like, so much I, stuff. I need I to sit down and experience. force myself on it. Yeah. Papa is much more easy because he he sort of has a very brutalist and my that's how I describe it as so this very brutal t- Teutonic way of like writing where yeah. he kind of just goes straight to the point. There is no yeah. like yeah. circling around gently arriving at the point. There's like various premise like there's like minor premise, major premise, conclusion, minor premise, major premise, conclusion. And when he has to like deal with an objection, he'll just dedicate like a page and a half of a footnote mm-hmm. to do it. Mm-hmm. Casually. Um, I've seen wanna... like a free page footnote from him. Um, okay, so if you want to get into reading Yarvin, um, has you a heads up. Uh, it looks like in March, I will be doing my first Curtis Yarvin months where I will be, I have it on uh, Popular Liberty, mm-hmm. Matt Erickson of Kingpilled, and Solomane. Um, oh, that's great! I love Charlemagne. I'm having those three on at different time for different Yarvin books. Um, so I'm gonna do a whole month of Yarvin. I already I already covered Pat's work with Jay. I'm gonna try to do one more maybe with Pete Canonas. Um, and then 
lastly, we got a bunch of comments here from Rogue Coyote 27. And I'm going to, I figured we have to check people commenting. Let's kind of go through this real quick. Thoughts on the priestly fraternity of St. Peter. I'm a new Catholic by about a year. Um, so anybody know what that is? Uh, the FSSP, yeah, the FSSP is um, one of so-called indult societies, along with the Institute of Christ the King, um, and so the story goes. So it all goes back to uh, Archbishop Lefebvre and the, the Society of Saint Peter, uh, Pius X. That was the other um, one he listed. Yeah. Um, FSSP um, grew out of what was called the indult that was offered by uh, Wittila, Carol Wattila or John Paul II in 83, and I think FSSP started in 88 or something like that. Basically, it was an allowance by the Vatican for groups uh, of priests to form societies based on essentially pre-Vatican II, um, based on the pre-Vatican II rites. So they would be permitted to offer the the mass of John the Twenty Third, nineteen sixty-two missal, um, perform all the sacraments in the night with the nineteen sixty-two missal, um, and but in full communion with with the Vatican. So it was kind of like. You know, you don't have to do any of the new stuff. You can use, you know, they, they basically sort of, they amassed a whole bunch of priests that were traditional. They were skeptical of um, the Novus Ordo, but they didn't want to be um, disobedient to the Vatican and all that kind of stuff. So they formed the society and, um, and they little by little sort of took over old traditionalist chapels and churches throughout the United States. Um, there were, there's two in here where I live that were traditionalist chapels were not converted after 1968. They remained um, in the, had the, had the altar and the interiors in the old style. And when the original priests kind of retired or died, they kind of moved in they and some people say really underhandedly they sort of um curried favor with some of the people in the parish and displaced the old guard and kind of took over and moved in um they are you know a lot of people held them in very high regard if you were sort of what was called a conservative novus ordo catholic meaning you didn't go to the new mass. You liked the traditional mass, but you didn't want to be like, you know, this whole thing is kind of weird. And, mm -hmm. and, um, but basically they are, you know, if you were really traditionalist, like if you were sort of, um, of the Society of St. Pius X type or even further afield of that, if you're an independent or if you're a Catholic or one of those kinds of, Catholics, um, they were always sort of like not the enemy, but like playing footsie with the enemy because they were still mm. obedient to the Vatican. Um, there's a question of whether their ordinations were valid because they were done mm. by new you know, bishops that were consecrated using the new rite, which is inherently 
traumatic to say the least. Mm-hmm. We can get into that. That's a really long discussion. But um, next time, <laughs> yes. next time, yeah. And um, we we could do a whole, you know, that I could do for dummies episode. I, I'm I'm cool with, with talking about that. Yeah, I desperately um, need it. I think I, I'm, I'm I was, picking up. Um, I was raised in Vatican cool. too, essentially. I'm picking up this yeah. so so was, was I, mean, I was, You know, I went to Catholic school for 12 years. Uh, my family was big in our parish. We gave money when they built our new church. And then I fell off after high school. And then for 25 years, I was you know, apostate. And it in 2020, kicked everybody in the head. And and you know, it was. Tom Wood's silly little white paper on the Latin Mass that stuck ah. stuck seed right back in my head, and um, I, you know, decided to return and, re- you know, being an obstinate sort of contrarian, I knew I wasn't going to go back, and I kind of fell into some, you know, I, I'm not a good traditionalist, but you know, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm aligned with prior to 1962 um but anyway um they're now being threatened by the vatican by traditionis custodis the, the motu proprio that came out in the summertime um because the, the whole purpose of the indult and the whole purpose of Samorum pontificum which was uh, ratzinger's um clarification that you know creating the extraordinary and ordinary forms of the mass um though because basically what happened happens is that the bergoglio pontificate and all the people behind him are really crying trying to sort of okay we don't want anything we're 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 going full tilt on the revolution so we need to sweep away all of these you know um, ties to the past, and we want everybody to be in line with Vatican II. We're not going to abide by it anymore. And these are organizations that were um, committed to—I hate to even say that they were cosplaying or LARPing, you know, pre-Vatican II Catholicism, but it's kind of what they were doing. Um, but they offered reverent masses and. You know, they did the old sacraments and they listened to confession using the old right. And, you know, but um, they, they, you know, there's a there's a fear that they're just going to be dissolved. You know, mm. um, they're not going to allow them to say masses. I mean, they're already, um, you know, they're already coming down on them in a number of cities. I mean, I know Supich is four of the seven parishes that were offering Latin masses in Chicago are now no longer allowed to. Um, but. So yeah, so that's what FSSP yeah. was, is the group of priests. The Society of St. Pius X is a, um, it was, it wasn't really, it was not really founded by, but the major personality associated with it was Archbishop uh, Marcel Lefebvre, who was, um, he was a missionary in Africa. He was president, he went to the council, in 62 to 65 um and he was deeply troubled by what was coming out of vatican ii and he was opposed to it and um he set up this pre you know this not really religious and i can't remember what the name what they actually call it structurally but uh with the intention of training traditional priests in the old form Hmm. and and um they 
kind of gave they didn't really give birth to the sort of traditionalist movement i mean that happened in the united that happened in 63 64 and in but you know he was a big thorn in the side of the vatican for a number of years and there was a lot of problems with him because he you know if you read any of the if you read any of the writings of bishop bishop Donald sanborn um who was ordained by the archbishop in the 70s uh, was one of the original uh, ordained priests coming out of the society. He said he had a problem with, you know, on some days he would be very op oppositional to, Va to the Vatican and other times he'd want to snuggle up to them and it, it depended on who he was dealing with. Um, so the society today is very big, has a lot of people associated with them. They administer a lot of chapels. Um, they have one seminary in the United States and I think at least a couple in Europe. Um, but they're kind of um, they're sort of the vanguard of the recognize and resist um, movement of in traditionalism, where they're 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 trying they they're well, and and there's a lot of variation even among the individual priests, but the hierarchy have been trying to make peace with the with the Novus Ordo its its entire lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not, you know, they're not beholden to any bishop, although they have their own bishops, but the bishops are outside of the diocesan structure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're, you know, depending on who you ask, they're either, you know, they have certain faculties that were granted by Bergoglio uh, to hear confessions and to offer uh, marriages. But they're not fully in communion with the Vatican, and they're, you know, I mean, I occasionally attend an SS, uh, SSPX chapel uh, nearby. Um, you know, the priest is based. This he's based. In, I mean, he's just, you know, um, you know. But so I, I don't. I understand the theological arguments against them. Um, I understand them. I accept them. I I came to the realization one morning that the people that are going to masses, either at dioceses that offer the Latin mass or at FSSP chapel or at an SSPX chapel, they're not bad people, nor are they like the enemy or anything. Mm -hmm. um, they're just trying to receive the sacraments and, um, you know, so that that's them in a nutshell. I mean, you know, there's a lot of material out there on the societies, um, but that's that's kind of, you know, the mm -hmm. brief, brief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so and I'll I'll chime in very quickly as I've got a, a priest friend who's in FS, FSSP hmm. um, has probably offered maybe not every uh, extraordinary form mass that I've attended, but but the vast majority of them um, and introduced me to the extraordinary form of the mass. Um, and I've, I've had had nothing but, but a good experience with him and, and don't know all the details of what the, what FSS, FSSP is doing. Um, but my, my personal experience with the, with a priest from that um, order or whatever you fraternity, I guess has been nothing but positive. And I've been, I've been mm -hmm. really thankful for that, for that relationship. So in a, in a, in a much more sort of, um, 
personal way. My, my experience with them has mm-hmm. been has been fantastic. Yeah. Okay, last one. We're gonna skip. Uh, well, no, there's two more. Uh, does anyone here besides me watch the show Pine Through Aquinas? I've watched a few of their episodes. Uh, they're pretty great. I might actually start making it a regular thing. I still have. A, I've downloaded the uh, the epistemology episode you sent. Uh, it's a great one. Oh my god! It's a good uh, one. I'll probably go for one of my morning jogs uh, tomorrow or, or today, actually, where I am because it's past midnight. <laughs> uh, in like eight hours or something, and I'll try to listen to it. That's a great one. Anybody else? Nope. Okay. And then last one here we got. Did anyone besides me watch the new Tom Woods episode, Blue Rockwell? Where oh, I, I, I've said oh. it before. No one goes after the Pope like Tom Woods. His episodes I, on the Pope are the best. I haven't finished that. Did they get to the Pope, Pope near the end? Because I think yeah, yeah it was, it's okay. it's about two thirds of the way through, three quarters of the way through. But yeah, Rockwell just. Uh, I think he explicitly calls the Pope a heretic, and therefore says he can't actually be the Pope. He's like, people, no, 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 no those, those are, that's almost verbatim his words. Like, it's, it's, oh, God he slaps it. Rockwell. People were texting me, asking me, like, hey, do you know if Luke Rockwell's a seven, a, a seven day, not a seven day Adventist? That'd be a, Kansas. Uh, yeah, Avocantus. I'm like, I don't think so. But when you talk about the Pope, I'm, I don't believe he <laughs> he's is. He's close. But he's, he's on that border. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Yeah, blame if, him. If anything, Regolio has done. To finish that episode. Is, is to, is, the scales are falling from a lot of people's eyes, I think. Uh huh. You know. But um, no, I, I I heard about it. Um, I I haven't listened to Tom in a long time. I was in the I was in the supporting listeners group for a long time, and mm-hmm. I um I stopped going because the energy in there was just like it, like twenty twenty messed everybody up, and I yeah. hated what it was doing to me. So I just sort of backed away from it. And, yeah, and I and I and once I sort of stumbling down the quote unquote post libertarian you know, dirt road, mm-hmm. uh, Tom, like I didn't need to hear any more about how the market was going to give me, you know, chickens yeah. flying into my mouth. You know, uh-huh. like, um, and, but, um, when Lou speaks, I listen. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. I, I now listen to Tom when he has either an interesting topic or an interesting guest. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, if I need to refresh myself on some like weird Austrian thing, yeah. uh, you know, Tom's good in that. Uh, I find Bob Murphy, if you want to, like, you know, he, he's the guy. If you want to really get into weird topics in economics, like, what's the re-switching debate? You know, what's the weird view of Hayekian, capital? Hayekian the, triangles. It's what the block. Yeah, what's Hayekian triangles? Uh, or he has a guy who's, like, both, like, a very accomplished Austrian school economist who also talks about the politics of Star Wars, who wrote a book on it. I, 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 I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get that guy on the podcast. Yeah. He's great. But Machai, who not only wrote a really good book on capital theory, but I've, I've read halfway. I need to finish it, but he apparently wrote a really good book on polit- star Wars, political theory. I have a few disagreements with his takes on it, but I, I could, I also, I, I have a podcast series on, on the politics of Star Wars. So, um, so uh, I, I, I missed the Star Wars bit. So, like, okay, I, if I'm gonna be involved, like, what's the, <laughs> what, what's the official group statement on Star Wars? Like, where are we all at with it? Uh, uh, Original trilogy so, is amazing. Yeah. Episode six is probably one of the best ones. And I think I think we called we called the neutral or I called the referred to the neutrality as pornography. So I think that's oh, yeah, okay. All right. All right. So if I so if I'm the advocates in the room, I'm also the Star Wars extremist. I I I am of the opinion that the, even the prequels are not canon. 
yeah. I like I can, the prequels, I, but I, I can, I can, uh, I will sacrifice my liking of the prequels uh, just to compromise and say, okay, we can decanonize the prequels. I like what came of them. I like the <laughs> I would, extra I media. Say, exactly. I was going to say, like, I don't like episodes one and two, but episodes three and the Clone Wars are so good. I have to tolerate the first two. I feel like. And then, and then I was somebody was saying, "Who is this? Who's it?" Was one of the one somebody I follow on Twitter? He was. Oh, he was complaining about how bad the book of Boba Fett was, and oh, yeah. and I and I and I, I had put up, and I had put up something. I I had said, I I watched the the money episodes of the Mandalorian, and I realized that it was basically the indult mass or like, you know, <laughs> the indult mass of of Star Wars, meaning it was all uh-huh. externals and you know, just done for, you know, here here's here's a Jedi. Here's a Mandalorian. Yeah. Outfit. Here's like yeah. Empire stuff. Here's, it was great looking. That was, was about it. Looking. Yeah, that's what exactly was all it was. About it. But, I mean, yeah, it was all about the looks. No substance. Yeah. This is why I want to get the Lego sets because they actually, I just, I can, I can just look at it and go, "Whoa, this is battle." I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expose myself as a real dork. I bought a lightsaber, like a really good one. It, it I don't know when it's gonna mm-hmm. get here, but I got a really. Oh, I have a Master Replicas one in a box somewhere, but I got a really, really good one. They re-released. Thanks. Something. I think oh, Caleb something. went to try oh, and outdoor you. Get his? Yeah, that's the same. He, yeah, he tried to outdoor okay. I, I went think. to um. So I hear I have the build you own from Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have my build my own with you know I but I went there when I was like twelve, so I have that around. I got so high end the Kylo Wen, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. I have a replica one that you can put a new piece on of Luke's. Nice. Huh. This yeah, is my I, favorite one. Yeah, I got so cool. um. They re-released um. Is it, it, it's Vader's Vault? Mm. Um, they make mm-hmm. really, 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 really good ones, and they re-released the original uh, Graflex episode four, episode five, one, and I wanted one for a really, really long time, so I <laughs> ordered it. But um, yeah, so it'll be here in like maybe six or seven months. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Eventually. All right. So that, so that I just wanted to clear. The, I wanted to make sure we, everybody knows where we are in terms of Star Wars. Okay, continue. Yes, mm-hmm. we're all good. Lou, Lou Rambo, um, yeah. Oh yeah. I no, I'm saying. <laughs> yes. No. Like Tom Woods episodes on the Pope. No one like uh, who's I've seen Michael knows on the Daily Wild. And anytime a Pope scandal comes up, they're bringing it up to him like the Pope. He's just misinterpreted. He's speaking Italian. He's misinterpreted. And that's his outfit. We think. And Tom Woods he opens up was like, no. Here's why I'm allowed to criticize the Pope, and here's why he's wrong. And it just goes through point for point why the Pope is wrong. Then again, if I'm only getting my news of the Pope from uh, the media, who lies to me about everything else, I wouldn't be that shocked if, like, like half of his comments were relatively innocuous. But, you know, they put it in a frame that, you know, benefits them. Yeah. Uh, and would make anyone who's uh, like even a slightly traditional mm-hmm. Catholic upset. Upset. I wouldn't be that shocked if, if no. someone revealed that. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun. I yeah. always, I, I really enjoy these uh, conversations because I, I don't, I don't. All my friends I aware besides one are uh, commies. I have one friend who's Catholic, <laughs> and so I never. And all my friends are nihilistic, atheist commies. I have one uh, for this part to say, one for this Catholic. And so I don't get to have these conversations often. And so I really appreciate and enjoy having these conversations. Uh, let's well, go around the table. And, oh, go ahead. Well, well, I mean, you know, AC, you're, you know, you're going to learn, or you probably know by now, once you get married and have kids, as a man, you lose friends. <laughs> like, you end up not having friends anymore. <laughs> yeah. Until, you, you know, until maybe you get retired. 
but um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's been enjoyable. I'm glad I was able to make it. And uh, absolutely, glad you can make it, man. Let's do uh, let's do some plugs. Bill, huh? I got Bo Bokov. Yeah, yeah, it's a Russian name. Volkov. Yeah, I don't really have anything to plug at the moment. I'm tr- going to try and write a, an article summarizing uh, a few key points of Roger Scruton's uh, short introduction to beauty for the for Caleb's paleotomism site. Uh, I'll try to get it by the end of a month. When and, you're done, uh, we're going to do a live weekly on the podcast. Yeah, and by the time uh, we get around to the book club and sexual desire, I'm probably going to try to at least have one article and one of his major concepts because that's <laughs> that's basically a treatise. That book, uh, it's not a such relatively short treatise if you compare it to like human action or something, but it's still a treatise. Uh, so I'll probably gonna try to get at least one article out. I might, and then you know, I'll make it into a series for the major concepts uh, and say that even if you are not, I'm gonna essentially try to make the point that even if you don't want to make a theological or an argument from faith in God. Even if you just want to go from reason, you would still arrive at basically the same conclusion that the trad gaps have on sexual morality. Uh, so that's essentially that. the argument I'm going to try to make. It's just going to be a summary of Scruton's uh, argument for the same. Uh, and I'll probably work on that throughout February. And uh, yeah, throughout February, see if I could crank out you know, at least two by the end of February. Uh, and I'll try to get one, art- one brief article summarizing beauty. Uh, by the end of January. Awesome. I'm Kath. What about you? So real quick, I just want to say, Bogov, if you get that uh, the article up before a round table, I'd love to have a discussion about the the sort of secular sexual morality. Maybe a really interesting thing to have a topic oh, on. So yeah, that's this. great. Yeah, Scruton's an Anglican, but he basically is trying to convince the reader for reason. So he kind of does say that uh, if you can get this, you can get where he's going by just... Uh, you know, taking certain uh, premises on faith, but he's trying to not do that. So he admits that he's going through a more roundabout way. He's, he's pretty great. Nice. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Caleb and I are doing a book. Caleb's doing 50,000 book clubs, but at some, <laughs> at some point we're doing on the divine images. We'll uh-huh. look out for that in the next month or halfway so. Through it. Halfway through it. 51 pages to go. Nice. I went um, through a big chunk of that last, like last night. It's a yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get into it. No spoilers. Um, mm-hmm. uh, see at Ioncath on uh, Twitter and then uh, anarchocatholic.substack.com. I have I've got a bunch of drafts sitting around, and eventually some things are going to come out as soon as I'm not on uh, on newborn <laughs> New parent life. Yeah, I've got all the things that I've sort of half written with a baby asleep on me, but it's uh, they they need polish, and I do not have the the spare uh, processing power in my brain for it right now. Those anyone need to try to find uh, anyone's plugs? Any, anyone on here wants to find Einkast or anyone Substack? Uh, going through the Paleotomism website, there are all the links available there. So make sure you follow that website. And make sure you subscribe so you can get updates from me. When it, when anyone here releases anything, it's going to be plugged through the Paleotomism website. So uh, make sure you guys, everyone listening, uh, subscribe and get get ready for more content because it's going to be great. Sand, okay, I got, I got it, I got it. <laughs> George. I George. 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 <laughs> George, um, what are your plugs? Uh, follow um, Scanderbag145 at, uh, on Twitter. Um, it's in the description, people, so you don't have to worry yeah, about it. Um, how to spell it. You know, again, this the, my sub is very lacking. It's it's pretty new. I'm, you know, I'm still playing with what I want to say on it. Um, I'm, I'm using it sort of as a uh, 
Pete, Pete, we we gotta talk to Pete. Like I just so oh, yeah. just talk like he's great. He, he's one of the guests I have listed to try to get. The, the 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 he did this. You know, he kind of got <laughs> me where I'm at now. And Same. um, you know, uh, it him I throw little barbs at him, and he I think he gets them. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but anyway, um, I'm 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 just sort of. I've been buttressing my formation, which is, which was garbage. Mm. And, and I'm um, sort of in two worlds, you know, I'm playing with both Byzantine and Roman, right. So I'm reading both reading stuff on both sides. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm the, the ortho bros irritate me, but I kind of understand what they're saying. <laughs> you irritate me too, man. Many um, such cases, but uh, we can. We, if I get down the road a little bit further, we might want to talk about you know some of that stuff too. Um, down for but, that. Um, um, you know, um, interesting things that come stick out of my mind or what I read, I'll probably put up and comment on them. Um, and um, you know, that's it, really. You know, it's, mm-hmm. been, it's been fun. Awesome. There, there's a really good. There's a really good page. Um, that I stumbled on and Caleb, I think I sent you the link to it. The WM review. Um, this guy, I think he's, oh, out yeah, of the that UK. was really good. He's out of the UK. I don't know who he is, what he is, but he's just, he's, he's got some really good stuff, really good reference material. I mean, as I said, in the chat, his, his series on learning self-study of sacred theology. I mean, like that's a, that's a seminary syllabus basically those books <laughs> i bought a bunch of them already so <laughs> nice um yeah we plug somebody that i i have no relation to but i just find really interesting so i feel um, that um well guys this is the episode season one episode two of the paleotomism round table make sure you follow everyone here my at is in the description as well um plans for the podcast in the future we're going to do more books more deep conversations and guest list i have got a confirmation from Popular Liberty that he will be coming on eventually. Hmm. Uh, got one from I think Grant and the, the Contradentilas crew might be joining us. So, mm-hmm. I know I think Grant's down. I don't know about Jeremy because he's I can't get I don't know how to contact him. But um, I want to get Pete on and Jacob Danny from Medical Tree also has agreed to come on if we can um, look out time. So we got a lot of stuff in the works, a lot of great stuff going on. Make sure you follow everyone here. Follow Paleotomism. Subscribe to the email list. Um, yeah. Well, huh. Oh, we got someone saying great show. Thank you, uh, Low Coyote. And uh, everyone have a good night.